Ladies and gentlemen, kicking off the first stop on his world tour, our new president and prophet, Russell M. Nelson! You say you want some revelation, well here you go. It's gonna blow your freaking mind. Greetings, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the weekly Mormon News Roundup, where Colby Reddish, Ryan McKnight, and D-Bays ruminate on the great and spacious beehive. Today is May 21st, 2023. We're going to review uh, uh, the 60 Minutes bombshell Mormon who left Wall Street to work on alleged LDS charity. He finally breaks his silence, David Nielsen. Uh, and uh, let's hear what he has to say about the church's clandestine hedge fund. You're not going to want to miss this. this is with Colby Reddish and Ryan McKnight. They are co-hosting. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm at Mormon, mormonnewsroundup.org. That's www.mormonnewsroundup.org. Or you can send me an email to colob at mormonnewsroundup.org. We're on Twitter at at newsmormon, or you can leave us a voicemail as well. If you'd like to support this, uh, uh, this program, then you can visit us on Patreon. Just search for Mormon News Roundup. And you're really going to enjoy this episode. So here we go. Uh, Ryan McKnight, welcome to the Mormon News Roundup. Hey, Dives, thanks for having me. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, you know, uh, not everybody knows who you are, but I think everybody should know who you are. Uh, you're a Las Vegas-based accountant who played an instrumental pol a role in making Mormon policy, forbidding children of LGBTQ parents from being baptized. You're probably best known for uh, Mormon League, so founding that with your uh, uh, co-founder there, Ethan Dodge. So who are you? I mean, that's a pretty good summary of it. Uh, you know, we... Mormon leaks morphed into, as I'm sure you know, uh, Truth and Transparency, which I think is the website you're actually scrolling through there. Um, and that was sort of our attempt to do some deeper investigative journalism because um, the initial site, Mormon leaks, was we, we didn't write articles. We had wiki entries. We had our own wiki. and um, But we were really just a, a repository of, of documents and videos and the things that we had. And we would, if you look at our, our wiki entries from, the, from the, that era, we were just sort of putting something out there and, and very in a very vanilla way describing what it was so that other journalists could use it in their stories. And um, actually, it's just a little bit tied to, to what we're going to talk about today. When we when we broke the story about the, the 13 shell companies, um, that ended up being sort of the first time that we had done any kind of investigative journalism, uh, you know, in our pursuit to verify the information. And after we were done with that, we thought, oh, we, I, you know, we kind of liked it, liked it. And we, we thought maybe we should do our own investigative journalism instead of, you know, relying on others to use our material. And so that was where the idea of truth and transparency was born from. And the other component that we were trying to do was to expand beyond Mormonism and, and do articles about other religions as well, which we did a little bit, uh, but not as much as we wanted to. Yeah, so I mean, your Mormon leaks became the Truth and Transparency Foundation. It filed its last report in 2022. Why did you fold up shop? Well, it's not an easy question to answer in a short period of time, but the the Reader's Digest version of that is, um, you know, in 2020 with COVID, there was kind of there ended up being kind of a perfect storm um, that affected us negatively. There was COVID, of course, and um, you know, all the personal challenges that came with that and not being able to, you know, dedicate a lot of time to, to Truth and Transparency Foundation. Um, but the other thing, right after the lockdown, within a week or two, I think it was, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses filed a lawsuit against us uh, because of some things that we had published about them. And, you know, we, we struggled to raise funds for our defense because it was COVID and everybody was holding on to their cash. And, um, 
yeah, we just were not able to get an adequate defense put up. You know, we didn't have the money for it. Um, every attorney we t talked to felt like we had pretty much a slam dunk winning case, but we just didn't have the money to go up against the Jehovah's Witness Church. So we, um, anyway, you know, we struggled with that lawsuit. Ultimately, it was settled. Um, there's articles out there. People want to read about that, about, you know, even the settlement. I think we published the settlement. Um, and uh, that kind of depleted us, not just financial. I mean, basically, when that was over, we had no money. And uh, so it depleted us financially. But more importantly, I think it depleted us um, emotionally and, and, you know, mentally. We, we were, it was a very probably one of the most stressful things I've ever gone through in my life. Um, you know, I, I know Ethan, it was stressful for Ethan as well. Um, it took a lot of the wind out of our sails. We, we kind of went on a hiatus after that. Um, I should say that before we got sued, we were working on this big story that we were hoping would sort of take the organization to the next level in terms of awareness. And we kind of put that thing on the back burner for a couple of years. It ended up being the story that we published in April of 2022 and, and made it our final story because we just, we just didn't have the funding to go forward. We were kind of tired of working for free for five years, however long it was. And we decided to just uh, publish the story in April of 2022 about our, about the real estate findings that we had, and then just sort of, you know, have that be our, you know, magnum opus for, if you will, or whatever you want to call it. And, and right off into the sunset. And, and, you know, we've got other stuff that we're kind of working on, you know, that's loosely related, but that's that we've done our best to keep the website up so people can still read the articles and access all the documents. And so far we've been able to do that. Well, I did want to ask you, you know, it seems like you have receded a little bit from the bright spotlight of the mid 2010s. And uh, do you, I know that secrecy is not your thing. So maybe you can tell us uh, what is it that you are, what projects are you currently working on? Are they related to religion? Are they related to Mormonism or, or what are you working on? Well, a couple of things I've got cooking are a little bit too early in the process for me to really talk about. But I think, the, the, you know, the one thing that I think that we're working on that 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 I think Ethan and I are both hoping can can happen in the next year or so is <clears throat> we're writing a book about the experience, about the whole thing. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, I think I don't I won't speak for Ethan, but for me, I think one of the motivations for writing the book is. Well, I think there's two 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 main motivations. I think one, I, you know, I'd like to create a, a, a record of what happened, you know, um, you know, to to last for time in all eternity, if you will. And uh, and the other thing too is I think it might be you know interesting to maybe give people a little glimpse of some of the stuff that we've never been able to share publicly, that maybe we can we can share um, in the book. I think there's still probably some things we're not going to be able to share just to protect particular sources and things like that, but just to give people a little bit of a behind the scenes look. So. Yeah, obviously you're best known for the founding of uh, Mormon Leaks, um, and, and you founded that. What was? I'm sorry, was that back in 2013? When did you found Mormon Leaks? And why, what? When did you found it? Why did you found it? What's it all about? This is the page here, and it talks about mm -hmm. leadership, finances, abuse, training. It has a, you know, this is a wiki, wiki page that goes along with it. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, wasn't quite back far, as far as 2013. 2013 would actually be um, when I actually left the church. Um, so if you've ever seen that date associated with me, it was probably, you know, because of that. Okay. Um, but as far as Mormon leaks goes, you know, it's, it's one of those things that was not planned and it's kind of like <clears throat> happens by accident because you're kind of in the right place at the right time. Um, I was, you know, part, I was involved in, and I guess you can call leaking the November policy. I, I don't know if it can really be called a leak, uh, but that's kind of what the, 
you know, the average person looks at that as having been a leak just because the church did try to quietly roll it out. I played a behind the scenes role in that coming out. And I wasn't like in any of the news articles or anything like that, but people on Reddit knew I had, I played a role in that. So I kind of became, you know, everybody dubbed me the leaker if you were on Reddit back then. I think it was like, I think that was November, 2015, I believe. And so I became the leaker on Reddit and and I, people would contact me after that from time to time with like things that they thought were leaks. Um, Most of it was nonsense from my perspective. Um, But then in 2016, somebody reached out to me and it was like right before the fall general conference, they reached out to me. They were like, Hey, I've got these 15 videos that I've always wanted to put out there, but I've never really known how to do it without it being traced back to me. You know? And I was like, yeah, I'll put them on YouTube if you want. I, mean, I didn't even know what the videos were when they contacted me. I don't think they even really told me exactly what they were, just that they were, you know, videos from inside the church uh, headquarters. And yeah, so you've just pulled those up. So if, if people go to our, our YouTube page, there are additional videos since we published these, but the, the first, if you go and look at the very first 15 uploads, those are the original videos. Um, and they're basically close circuit recordings of briefings that people would give to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. So think about it like, so for people that don't know, you have to think about the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as the board members of the church. Think of like a publicly traded company that has a board and the board decides who, you know, the president, you know, or, you know, sometimes maybe referred to as a CEO, you know, so they've chosen uh, Russell, Nel- Russell Nelson to be the president and you know, the council, and then he chooses his counselors kind of like a president would choose his VPs, you know, if you think of it like that, because they actually run it like a business structure like that. And so these videos are the, the board members, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, having briefings from various different people on various different topics, politics, uh, social issues, um, retention issues among members. I think well, there's a video about that. And um, so I put them up on YouTube. I called it just on a whim. I just called it Mormon Leaks. I, The guy said, Actually, I don't even know if it was a man or a woman that contacted me, but you know, the person who contacted me said, "Hey, if you can get these up before conference, I think that'd be awesome." So I like rushed to do that. I think I had them like set to auto publish like an hour before conference or something, and then I just kind of let it go. And um, I actually wasn't online that morning, that Sunday morning, and later in the afternoon, my you know, I noticed that my phone had blown up and these videos had gone viral. The one that really went viral, I hadn't even had a chance to watch it because I watched like all the short ones. Um, there's a bunch of them that are like under 10 minutes. I watched all those before I published, but the ones that were like an hour long, I didn't watch those. I just threw them up there. And, you know, one of those long ones had some really newsworthy stuff in it. So like, there was a big media frenzy up up to and including a New York Times article where now my name is out there. And I started getting inundated now with people reaching out to me with things that they wanted to publish. I mean, it was unbelievable, really, how how much how many people started contacting me. And I realized that, okay, I said, there's obviously a need for this. I couldn't really, I didn't really see any kind of outlet that was focusing on this type of a thing. And so I said, there's obviously a need for this, but I can't, you know, I can't half-ass this. This is like, you know, piss or get off the pot time, right? And so I kind of put, you know, reached out, put together a team of people where we brainstormed, you know, the website and how it would look like and, you know, there you go. It was, I, I wasn't sure it was going to work. It was kind of like, you know, if you build it, they will come mentality. But obviously we didn't know. And um, I think one of the things that helped us is we ended up getting a lot of press when we when we launched the website. We launched the website without any big leak. 
we, we were launching the website on the shoulders of those 15 videos, which at that point were probably, I don't know, a couple months old and, you know, out of the news cycle. Um, but it was, this is late 2016. So if you remember, um, you know, this is like, you know, Donald Trump's rise and there was a lot of news back then also about WikiLeaks and just there was, and I think it was connected to Donald Trump. So WikiLeaks was getting, you know, covered a lot. And I think we originally called the website Mormon WikiLeaks. And I think that ended up inadvertently helping us get a lot of press early on from like international and national outlets. So I, and then we published our first big leak a couple of weeks later. Um, yeah, I guess that's that. Let me ask you, what do you consider to be the biggest leak that uh, that Mormon leaks found? Is it the November policy, which really got you started? Is it those leaked 15 videos of the inner church sanctum of the briefings that mostly Elder Gong gave the senior leadership? Or is it what I actually kind of feel that it is, is the leaker that found the shell companies that eventually led to the church's SEC fine, which we're going to be discussing a lot today. Is it one of those three or is it something else? I mean, I think I think those are definitely up there. I mean, I, look, personally, I don't consider the November policy a leak. Okay. Um, and, and, and basically just the, you know, the three sentence thing of what happened there was I was in a private Facebook group that had just a few people in it. Somebody posted about this, that their, you know, that they, their clerk, their ward clerk friend had told them about this policy and it didn't sound true to me. So I posted about it on Reddit and on uh, John DeLynn's Facebook page thinking you know, something got, you know, broken telephone situation, you know, uh, there, there was something missing here. And, and and then it just went viral. And then John Dillon reached out to me and I put him into contact with this person who told me who was able to get John the the actual memo. And then, you know, it kind of went from there. But <clears throat> so I was basically, I wasn't, a, you know, I didn't really facilitate a leak. I think what I was in that situation was I was the first person to post about it on large forums that then went viral. Okay. Um, but as far as our actual leaks, you know, things that were not, you know, not meant to be made public that were given to us um, by insiders or whatever, you know, I think the the salary, our very first leak after the, when we had the website was the salary stipend information. And I think that's big. Uh, as far as I know, we're the first news outlet to publish um, salary information of the top executives um, since the church, you know, made their financials, you know, secret. Um, we had the bubble chart that's often referred to as the enemies list. I think the Washington Post dubbed it the enemies list. Um, that's the one that had John DeLynn's name in a big bubble, among a bunch of other things that the church feels th are threatening to their existence. Um, I know you mentioned the 13 LLCs, which I do think was big. The property story that we published last year showing essentially that in terms of value the church is the largest private landowner in the united states um in terms of acreage they're in the top five depending on you know any given day um i i also think you know getting away from the financial stuff you know we we published a story about um uh van wagenen i'm blanking on his first name right now um the the, the guy who was the sterling co sterling there we go sterling van wagenen who, who was the co-founder of Sundance Film Festival with Robert Redford um, and was the executive director of Sun, uh, Sundance Film Festival for, I think, the first 15 to 20 years, something like that. Um, and he had uh, basically molested a young boy back in the 90s. And our reporting led to another victim coming forward um, that the statute of limitations wasn't out on. And ultimately, Sterling Van Wagenen pled guilty and was uh, is in prison right now as we speak. And, I, you know, I, I feel like... Um, definitely a team effort there. You know, we're not solely responsible for that, of course, but uh, having contributed to that, 
justice, um, you know, feels good. And, and for those that don't know, by the way, Sterling Van Wagen and not, wasn't just, you know, a Hollywood director or whatever. He, the most recent three Temple films that I think went up in 2014 or 15, I think, um, the three new ones that they shot, he was the director, you know, so they, um, you know, they chose this guy <laughs> who, who has molested at least two children that we know of, but possibly more, um, as the, as the person worthy enough to direct the most sacred video experiences in, in all of Mormonism. So that was something that made, uh, made that story very newsworthy, but yeah, it's hard to pick one, to be honest with you. Wow, they're all so big. It's just incredible. Um, you know, we have a little bit of time here because we're uh, waiting on uh, our other co-hosts before we get into the 60-minute stuff here. Let, let me, I have a lot of questions for you, and I don't want to, and your time is very important. When you put out last April in 2022, the church's uh, LDS portfolio, the, the, the real estate portfolio, I believe your mm -hmm. report identified about $20 billion in real estate. But since that time, the Widow's Might report has upped that number from what I believe was your number, $20 billion, to $105 billion. And that was only in, they released their report, I don't know, about six months later. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but why is it that the Widow's Might report says that the church is, has $100 billion in real estate, but you are only able to find, I believe, 20? Well, I don't know the Widow's Might report. I don't know if they're solely basing it off of our, our spreadsheet and then just sort of updating the values. It could be that. Here's the problem that we were running into with that information. Uh, it, the, the number that we published and you say we published 20 billion, I don't remember the number that we published in our story, but if that does sound about right of what we would have published. Um, that was a very conservative number. When we published that number in 2022, we knew it was more than that, but we just couldn't substantiate a, a number bigger than that. And, and the problem that we were running into with that is that our data was a little bit stale. First of all, our data was from, um, I believe it was March of 2020. So in, in 2022, our data was two years old, and we know that, that real estate values went up a lot in those two years, but we didn't want to try to guess how much it went up. We were not comfortable doing that. And we weren't able to do a, a good enough analysis to come up with a number. The other thing I want to say, too, is that we were basing our $20 billion number on the county records. So whatever the county said the property was worth, which we know is sometimes maybe even often low. And the other third element there that made our number very low was that there was hundreds, maybe even thousands, people would have to go back to the spreadsheet and look, definitely hundreds, possibly thousands of parcels, big and small, that the counties that they were in had not assigned any value to them. And so the properties are there, but there's no value getting added into that $20 billion, And they're obviously worth more than $0. So when we published the number 20 billion, we were publishing that as sort of a, it's worth at least 20 billion. Right. Yeah. If you, pull, I, if, if you look at the truth and transparency, the number that you valued back in April was around $16 billion. This is okay, from your website. You and the Widow's there Right Report, it has totaled up the church real estate here from ecclesiastical buildings at 60 billion, Knowles Farms and Ranches, 12 billion, BYU, 10 billion, commercial and residential buildings, 6 billion, mission homes, 2 billion, and other property investments, 13 billion. It's 100 billion. So it, yeah. it's a significant difference in between the two valuations. And I was just, yeah. that, that, that made me want, wonder how it is that you came to two totally different numbers. Look, let's assume for a second that they relied on our spreadsheet because, I mean, our spreadsheet, while I know there are properties that were not on our spreadsheet, I think we captured, you know, pretty much all the real estate, at least non-single family. One thing that's not in our spreadsheet is single family residences that they own. It, it's only, you know, duplex and above. Um, but I think I, I really felt like when we published in 2022, just sort of eyeballing it and sort of back of the napkin math, I felt it was probably around 
50 or 60 billion. I just couldn't um, justify it enough to put it in the story. So it, it would not shock me if they took our spreadsheet and had some professional analysis done. Um, that, along with just general appreciation that has gone crazy in the last three years since that um, data was uh, obtained, um, it wouldn't shock me that it is at $100 billion, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely makes a lot of sense. Now, Colby Reddish, welcome to the Mormon News Roundup. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, this is our second time trying to get you on. Now, when you canceled the first time a couple of months ago, I thought for sure that the Spirit was warning you not to come on. But uh, it seems like you've done it anyway. Yeah, I don't think the Spirit works that way. I don't know that it oh. ever worked that way. Yeah. Oh, okay, maybe not. So uh, for those of you who don't know, Colby Reddish, uh, you're uh, a member of the Idaho State Bar. Uh, who, who are you anyway? Could you just, what is your bona fides? Well, so I'm an attorney that's licensed to practice in, in Idaho. Um, I think what you're sharing on the screen there is a, a, an article kind of about my background um, and my career uh, that the Idaho State Bar did last year uh, in connection with an award that I won, which was very nice. Um, and for the record, I didn't know we would be sharing this today. So this is uh, you nicely sharing something that I've kind of kept close to the chest. But yeah, I, I was selected for this award, which after the year my wife and I had had was honestly, when I got the letter, got the phone call, kind of talking me through that award, um, it it moved me to, to tears because I care a lot about my profession. I care a lot about my personal integrity. And it was nice to know that members of my legal community had recognized that. Yeah, you won the out Young Outstanding Lawyer 2022 in the Idaho State Bar. So kudos for you. Um, that's really something. Now, last year, I guess you gained even more notoriety last year when you went on to Mormon, uh, Mormon Stories and shared your story along with your uh, wife, Cami. And that's racked up over 100,000 views, which I think is more people than live in Idaho. I'm, I'm going to have to look that up. Now I'm just, um, what has been the reaction to your uh, stories? You're a year uh, removed from that. What, what has been the reaction to your Mormon Stories episode? Yeah, so there's been a lot of good reactions um, from both sides of like activity in the church spectrum. Um, ultimately, you know, after so our Mormon stories came out in February, and ultimately, as we, um, as Cami and I tried to, in a nutshell, our our story, what really triggered our faith crisis was that our sitting bishop was charged with child abuse crimes. Um, I knew a little bit more about. The nature of those types of crimes because of my background as a criminal prosecutor um, i had done that earlier in my career and uh, i did what the church tried to do did not sit well with me i will say to our stake president's credit um, he uh, tried to do his best to help us try and push salt lake for policy changes on the child sex abuse issue and how the church handles it ultimately um, you know we weren't able to make any of those type of changes and so Cami and I, in connection with, you know, the reporting last August on the Arizona Bisbee case, I think really showing the church's priorities, Cami and I decided to remove our, our records from the roles of the church. Okay, very well. Now, it's not just that you went on the Mormon stories. You keep coming on to podcasts here. You, you went on to Cults to Consciousness recently. You went on to uh, Nemo, the Mormon channel. You've been on radio. For, you've gone on every single um, a Mormon-related podcast. Why do you keep uh, coming into this space? What what is motivating you to continue? You said you had your membership re removed. Why are you continuing to inhabit this space? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I I love Mormon people. I love so much about um, there are so many heroes that I would call like Mormon renegades that were people who kind of stood up against the um, 
the bigger structure of the church, I think, when it was making unhealthy moves. I'm thinking of people like B.H. Roberts. Um, at my time at BYU, I worked as a research assistant for Professor Thomas Wayman, who's a very um, a very good man, a very good, credible Bible scholar. He no longer teaches New Testament at um, at BYU, uh, which blows my mind because that's his, you know, he, he, he adds so much to that conversation um, from a, a more mature spiritual perspective, I think, on the New Testament. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is my Mormon experience was shaped by people like that. Um, and that's that's part of what I'm trying to do is find um, inroads with the members of my family or members of my extended community that are still choose to participate in the church. Because um, for the most part, they just don't know. They don't know. Um, they've been given bad tools, uh, bad epistemological tools since the time they were little, just like I was. And so that's why I keep wading into the space. I think the simple answer to the question, why do I keep coming on pod Mormon themed podcast or ex Mormon themed podcasts um, is because people keep asking me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're grateful that you did come on. I want to thank you both so much for coming on. We always start our episodes before we get to the 60 minutes. We're going to spend plenty of time on that. We always start with a Mormon joke of the week here. And somebody has uh, given us some leaked footage here. Speaking of Mormon leaks, somebody has given us some leaked footage of President Nelson himself visiting Ensign Peak. Just wanted to play that for you. Family truly is the greatest adventure of all oh, no, the ground. Okay, that's that, that's all you got. That's our Mormon joke of the week here. Before we get started, we always start with that one. That that's that. I don't know if, if that was Mormon. If that was given to Mormon leaks, I don't know if you published that, Ryan. Right? Yeah, we had to pass on it. I understand. Totally understand. <laughs> now, before we hop into the sixty minutes here, uh, Lori Vallow, the Doomsday Mom, she has been uh, convicted here. Colby, this is in your neck of the woods here. Uh, you're, an, you're an admitted pettifogger, very familiar with Mormonism, and live in Idaho. I can't think of anyone better to give us some analysis of Lori Vallow here. She's been convicted on multiple counts here. Uh, we're waiting for her sentencing, and she is smiling here for the cameras here. Look at this mugshot here. Uh, wow, that is really – she is smirking after her murder conviction. Of course, she was accused of killing her two children, J.J. Vallow, Tylee uh, Ryan, and uh, there she is being escorted out of church, the doomsday mom. She's going to be behind bars. Her husband, Chad Daybell, his uh, court date is coming up soon. And, uh, you know, uh, this has got to be pretty big in your neck of the woods, though, isn't it, uh, uh, Colby? Oh, yeah, this is huge news. So I work in downtown Boise um, and, you know, the Ada County Courthouse where they had to hold the trial so that she could have a fair trial, even though it's being prosecuted, I think, by Fremont County, which is where my mom grew up. So, um, yeah, it's been a very big deal. I I'll admit freely I haven't been following the case um, I've been very busy the last couple um, weeks and haven't been able to get over and see any of it my mom did go and watch and said it was incredibly sad uh, she only watched a few days but yeah the ultimate takeaway is that Lori Vallow was found guilty on all counts including I think conspiracy to commit murder on one of Chad's um, earlier spouses so that's really all I can offer um, I know that we'll see appeals uh, based on the trial probably that will continue for years that's just kind of the nature of of where these types of cases end up but it's it's good news i think um one of the reasons i haven't followed it very closely i'll admit is because my time as a prosecutor i have to very carefully choose what i engage with in the true crime kind of space because it's that type of stuff gets very heavy when you've kind of waded through some of those files yourself and and you know had coworkers who have tried those types of cases and so I, I have to limit how much I expose myself to that kind of heaviness. We should be seeing the sentencing trial come up. What, what is that in between? The, in this type of case, should there be a month or two months in between? Or how long does that usually take before we would see a sentence handed down? 
Yeah, I wouldn't expect anything for a month or two. They're probably going to do what's called a pre-sentencing investigation report. So they'll they'll have her talk with mental health professionals and a bunch of other type of professionals to see, um, you know, a little bit more about her background, uh, mitigating, aggravating factors, stuff like that before they judge hands down a sentence. Absolutely. Now, we have another article, a couple of other articles before we get into our featured article, because we do want to cover quite a bit of Mormon news. And this is uh, interesting here. President Nelson has issued a statement on his health saying that little challenges with balance should be the least of our worries. My heart is good, my spirit is strong, and my brain still works. And here we have a picture of him with his walker here, which is posted on social media. And this is very interesting here. It says, you may have heard a rumor that someone saw me somewhere using a walker or a wheelchair. Well, it's not a rumor. Here we have President Nelson waiting in, letting us know what we should be worried about. And that kind of got me thinking, guys, here. And um, he says the least of his uh, least of our worries should be President Nelson and his balance. And, and let me tell you this. For once, I definitely agree with him. That truly is the least of my worries. But that got me thinking that hmm, I wonder what should be the most of our worries. If that's the least of our worries, what should be the most of our worries? And we always have a Mormon News Roundup poll of the week. And that, that kind of makes me think, you know, if his balance isn't very important, then what sh- what is important? I was here's a couple of choices that I kind of thought about from this is just from two weeks ago. There was a two point three billion dollar judgment. Um, in a sex abuse uh, lawsuit for a single case. This was not a class action. This was a single case where $2.3 billion was uh, awarded and naming the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, from a woman who was abused for years in um, California. I thought, you know, maybe that should be the most of our worries. Or is it uh, the Boy Scout abuse uh, claims that uh, we still have about 75,000 of those uh, class action Boy Scouts, many of whom were abused in the church. Maybe that should be the most of our worries. Or is it the declining church growth rate? The church has uh, lost members uh, consistently back to uh, this is the church growth rate with regards to the world's growth rate. And for the first time in the last couple of years, the church is not gaining members as in a proportion to the world's population. Maybe that should be the most of our worries. Or is it the SEC settlement and um, the aftermath of the fine? Maybe that should be the most of our worries. I'm just going through a few things here. I'll get you guys to weigh in here in a moment. Or I'm not afraid to admit that one of the most of my fears is David Glenn Hatch. I'm not afraid to admit, gentlemen, that I am afraid of David Glenn Hatch. Maybe that's irrational. I, I totally understand if you're not, but personally, I am. That David Glenn Hatch, he's right up there for fears. I, I am a little bit worried about him. Or the fact that President Nelson, according to legend and rumor, he was snubbed for the coronation of uh, King Charles. He was not invited. All of the other major world faith leaders were there. But President Nelson, he was snubbed. Maybe we should be worried about that. <coughs> or maybe we should be worried about BYU losing its accreditation over the transgender issue. Maybe that should be the most of our worries. That's uh, hard for me to know. Or Brad Wilcox, again, I'm afraid of Brad Wilcox. I don't know about you, but I am. He, he, he frightens me. That's that's that I call me irrational. Or maybe President Nelson should be worried that the Truth and Transparency Foundation has gone out of business. That should worry all of us, I think. Or the fact that half the people listening to this podcast are not subscribers or that Colby Radish seems to go on every podcast but ours. Well, until now, which if any of those concerns, uh, this is kind of a joke poll here, but should any of those be the most of our worries here, guys? I mean, I think if I if I actually looked very often like I do in that photo that we took for dramatic effect, I would that would be the most of my worries. <laughs> that's a good photo. Uh, yeah, definitely. That's just a joke, Paul. Uh, any of those should be, any of those be the most of our worries? He doesn't. He says the least of our, uh, uh, Ryan. He says the least of the worries should be as balanced. Did any of those that come out with our poll of the week should those be the most of our worries or something else? 
I mean, they were all pretty concerning to me. I'm kind of shaking in my boots right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one other article here, guys. Be, uh, actually, two other articles real quick before we get into 60 Minutes here. And this is the church of the United Nations General Assembly. President has met with the First Presidency. So he came to the church office building. You can recognize the interior of the church office building from a mile away here. And this is the uh, current UN General Secretary. And uh, his name uh, is def- kind of difficult to pronounce, but it's Chaba Koroshi. I hope I think I've got that right. Chaba Koroshi, he came to uh, he came to Salt Lake. He met with President Nelson. He met with a number of the church leaders here. And this is an unprecedented level of uh, visiting here. I thought it was very interesting. Now, it, it is notable that uh, President Nelson, he has not left the state of Utah except for one time since 2020. So if anybody's going to visit him, they're going to have to come to him because he's only left Utah once in the last three years. And, you know, some of those captions on those pictures, guys, I don't know if you could read those. They were kind of small. So I blew them up here just for um, your ease of being able to see them. So let me show you what those captions said. It says, Chaba, you ever hear of the Adam God theory? Uh, okay, maybe. Okay, maybe. That seems like a good topic for conversation. I'm just putting that out. That could be fascinating to him. I think that could be interesting. I could be a miss. I'm not sure. Or, sir, this is Utah. You're going to need a VPN to visit that website. <laughs> I'm surprised. I'm surprised both of you are laughing. That means you know what that joke is. That's that's a little surprising to me. That's a good uh, one. Okay. Uh, yeah, you're going to need a VPN. Or and, and then I submitted my documents to Mormon leagues. That's that's some red meat for Ryan there. That would be good. That would be good. Or finally, can I interest you in seeing the sort of laden? That would now. That's something I would like to see. That's the, uh, those captions are very very surprising to me. Any any thoughts on that president of the UN visiting President Nelson? I mean, it's just to me, it's just more of their political hobnobbing that I think they've done for decades. Definitely. And all, all, all going back to that, uh, Gordon, well, we have record going back to the Gordon Smith, um, mm-hmm. which you brought to our, our knowledge of what happened with Gordon Smith and Mormon leaks. Um, yeah. And, and what, what happened just briefly, what happened with the Gordon Smith leak tapes that we know that the church being involved in politics there, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, that that was of all those videos that we talked about in my intro section, um, you know, that was the video that caught the media's attention the most. Um, And it's what the basis of the New York Times article was about. I think um, uh, Gordon Smith was a Republican uh, senator from the state of Oregon, which I think is an important thing to point out, because uh, I don't think many of his constituents that voted him in were Mormons. Um, he went to one of these briefings for the, the Quorum of the Twelve. It, this was after he had left office, actually. So at the time of the video that people can see on the website, he had just left office. He was no longer a senator. But he's kind of, um, it's a debriefing. It's it's him recapping, you know, his time as a senator and working with the church. And he talks about, you know, how closely he worked with the church on getting guidance for votes. Um, and then there, there were two really interesting things that he said that caught people's attention. One was that um, I don't remember what the bill was, but he he talked about a bill that you know was really contentious, and he was his, his staff was not hearing back from the church on this bill, and so they didn't know what to do. And there was like a six week period where they were kind of in limbo, not knowing how to vote on this particular bill. <laughs> okay, um, and then the other one was he, he talked about his vote for the Iraq War. And talked about how, you know, one of his motivations to vote for the Iraq war was that, um, you know, if we could bring democracy to Iraq and freedom of religion along with that, that it would be great for the church. And I think at the time, you know, when people would interview me about it, I would say something like, um, regardless of your view on the Iraq war, whether you thought it was a good idea or not, I think everyone would agree that that is not a good reason to go to war with Iraq. So those were kind of the things, you know. 
it, it obviously showed that the church is, is influenced. You know, I think if Gordon Smith had been a Utah senator, I don't think it would have been as scandalous because you could make the argument that the majority of his constituents are probably Mormon and they would probably appreciate him getting advice from the Mormon church. I'm not saying that would be good, but at least, you know, you could find some layer of justification there. But I think the fact that he was from Oregon, and I mean, go look up how many people in Oregon are Mormons. I'm sure it's a, a fraction of a, you know, probably just a couple percent, I would guess. Um, you know, the fact that he's being influenced by the church, I think, is what's most troubling when his constituency is not really made up of Mormons. And what, one of the really interesting things about this video is that I, I, I want to say, and there is a date on it on YouTube of when it, when it happened, but it was like 2010, 2011, something like that. If this had been leaked back then, I wonder how it would have affected Mitt Romney's presidential campaign, because I know one of the big things that people criticize Mitt Romney about, and I, I always at the time, even though I, I actually didn't really support Mitt Romney, even though I was a believing Mormon at the time, but I, I did feel like this criticism was unfair when it would happen, is that, oh, is he beholden to the country or is he beholden to the church? And I think he did a pretty good job of, you know, staving that that criticism off. But I think it would have been really hard for him had this video come out at the time. Yeah. Any, any thoughts, uh, Colby, on uh, the, the church and politics and the U.N. being there? Well, I have one thought. There are so many members um, in the area where I live. So like right down the road from us, not only have we had this Vallo thing going on, we also have Ammon Bundy, who has strong, you know, like anti-government sentiments. And I think his Mormonism really helps inform that um, because of the whole idea of secret combinations. Right. And I've heard that from many members that like the government is corrupt because of secret combinations. And I just think I think it's so funny then when the church get caught, you know, gets caught doing things that it's spoken out against, like trying to in closed door meetings <laughs> influence politics, you know, in a state where the church isn't even the majority, like Ryan's pointed out. Um, and he was a federal senator, wasn't he, Ryan? If I remember correctly. Definitely. Yes, yes. he was. That, yes, that's what I thought. Yeah. So US they're trying senator, to U.S. senator. Right. So they're trying to affect politics on this national scene not in open, you know, that this was something that had to be leaked to Ryan and his organization. Um, it's just like, how many times can the church show that they don't really believe in the things that they say, right? Like, yeah. here they are do literally doing secret combinations. And I know we're going to jump to the 60 Minutes piece. You know, it's just, it's so apparent at this point. I, I don't understand how people can't see it. Well, it, it's funny that you mentioned that because the Mormonish podcast just this last week did an entire episode with uh, uh, that talked about how the church on the road to statehood, on the church getting to become a state, the kind of corruption, deceit and power and influence that, uh, uh, that the church needed to wield in order to become uh, a state. And this was a uh, put on by Ron Jorgensen, but who, by the way, is coming on to the Mormon News Roundup. So this has been with the church from the beginning, trying to hobnob, trying to get involved with politics. And we're seeing that even in the modern day here with the UN visiting uh, with the UN visiting President Nelson. Now, our final article here before uh, we get into the meat of our, our featured episode here is the church is building a new temple in Montana or basically has built a new temple in Montana. And we normally don't cover the, the temple openings here because uh, the temple openings, they're pretty routine. But this one really caught my eye because this is a temple unlike any other temple that you have ever seen. I'm going to play this TikTok here for you guys. And uh, I think this is going to be uh, very interesting. Check this out. 
The Helena Montana Temple is the first temple to be constructed on site in two weeks. The church just announced a revolutionary new way to build temples to make the process more efficient, cost-effective, eco-friendly, and yet it is still gorgeous. I think this is just so cool. The church has contracted with an Alabama company called Blocks to construct the temple off-site in modules, transport the pieces, and then assemble the temple rapidly on-site. This modular construction method isn't necessarily new, but doing it at this level of construction for the quality and detail required for a temple is something else entirely. This temple is 10,000 square feet, 96 feet high, and was constructed in the Alabama plant in 25 separate modules. They then trucked the modules to Montana where they were able to stitch together the modules in about two weeks. And then they also were able to install the electrical, plumbing, heating, cooling, and ventilation systems. With the rapid pace at which President Nelson's announcing temples, we just can't take five to 10 years anymore for construction. So this new process could potentially allow God's work to go forth at a much faster, more efficient pace across the world, blessing millions of lives. You can learn more at the Church Newsroom and follow for more Latter-day Saint news. Okay, uh, Ikea temples here, guys. Ikea. So is that real or is that a joke? No, that's real. That's real. That's from real Church News article. That is real. I know I know a lot. Of, there's a lot of jokes and a lot of trolling on this podcast. <laughs> no, that's a real thing. Yes, two weeks. Oh, it's a, I missed the news on that one. I missed the news. Assembled in modules off-site, then trucked on shit, and then and then just stitched together. Then, oh, this is a real thing. That's a real thing that's happening. You can make a temple now. I mean, they used to joke about the Mick temples. This is taking it to a nice level. You can make a temple in two weeks now here, folks. Wow. I'm I'm wondering with you know your comparison to IKEA. Usually you get instructions there in English, and I think <laughs> and they're hard to understand. <laughs> yeah. So does that mean these McTemple designs come with you know instructions in English and Calabian or the pure Adamic language? What's the second language that God sends these McTemples with? Now this is a this is a real article. I know I do, I do a lot of trolling here. Ryan's like, is he trolling me again? Now this is a real thing. Yeah, <laughs> that you can make a temple in only two weeks now on a fraction of the cost here. They're uh, it's really impressive, very remarkable. Uh, they just. Yeah, uh, Really I mean, good. it's amazing. It makes sense. And I'll tell you what, not that, you know, I'm trying to throw a bunch of kudos out to the Mormons, but it just really reinforces their ingenuity when it comes to um, thinking outside the box. And, and uh, you know, I don't know, just from a business standpoint, it's actually, I, I find it quite impressive from a business standpoint. Yeah, not, not from a religious standpoint. <laughs> absolutely. And remember um, that the church has said, we, has hinted that they want to get to a thousand temples in our lifetime. And that was going to be very, very difficult because a lot of these temples are taking, like she said, four or five years from the time that they're yeah. announced until it's actually complete five years. Well, if you're trying to get to a thousand, that can be very, very expensive. You're going to see, um, well, l- let me just play this clip for you here. This is uh, Elder Pearson here, uh, a Utah area conference here, uh, Elder Eric W. Pearson, who's going to talk about the church's temple. And that's also going to help us also, he talks about what the church does with as well. And that's going to help us transition into the 60 minutes. Let me just uh, play this for you because those two week McTemples, that's going to help uh, Kevin Pearson vision here. Now, is it conceivable that we would get to over a thousand temples in your lifetime. Absolutely. Absolutely certain. Now that'll take a lot of money. Okay. Where will that come from? Yet people wondering what the church is doing with its money. Well, as you can see, it gave away about a billion dollars last year just to try to help with hunger and feeding the poor. But the purpose of the church is not to feed the poor and the needy of the world. It will continue to do that at an accelerated rate. So we that's the vision of, yeah, a thousand temples in our lifetime. And in order to accomplish that, remember, we're not feeding the poor, we're building temples. And this two-week temple design, that's going to make it all happen. Yeah, you know, I, I wonder, uh, the cynic in me, I hear all that, and I'm like, well, if the purpose of the church is not to feed the poor, then why are you doing it? I mean, he says that's not the purpose of the church. Why are you doing it then? 
You know, it's just, I hate this language that these guys use. So remember, it's, it's, so hi- it's so hyperbolic and meaningless because if you repeat it back to them, they'll be like, well, that's not what I meant to say. Well, that is what you said. <laughs> well, the church did it's, have the fourth mission of the church a couple of years ago. Remember, there used to be a threefold mission of the church, which yeah. is uh, proclaim, the, uh, proclaim the gospel, redeem the dead, perfect the saints. But it also added the fourth mission about I don't know, about 15 years ago, which was supposed to be taking care of the of the hungry. And uh, that doesn't seem to be exactly what uh, Kevin Pearson's priority is, is it, is it Colby? And that's going to lead us directly into our featured article, right, Colby? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the 60 Minutes thing. I I would be remiss if I didn't just comment on, you know, what I said earlier. Like, how obvious can they make this, you know, like that it's completely inconsistent with the New Testament Jesus. Like he, there's very clear story about how, you know, in as much as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And instead they're just going to spend all this wealth on these buildings. It's just, it's just so misguided, I think. Okay. That does take us into our featured news article here. And the first thing that I want to play for you guys is the 60 minutes episode just landed last Sunday. But the first thing that we got in the 60 minutes episode was they released the trailer first about halfway through the week. And of course the trailer is supposed to pique your interest. So let me play this trailer for you and uh, get your thoughts because this is a very interesting trailer. Every year, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints collects $7 billion in contributions from its 17 million members. The church has its own investment firm. But there are questions now about how millions of those dollars have been used by the famously private church. What about, you know, the idea that secrecy builds mistrust? Mm -hmm. Well, we don't feel it's being secret. We feel it's being confidential. What's the difference? <laughs> and that's it. They leave you hanging. How's that for a trailer, there, Colby? What do you think? Well, I I will give credit to uh, presiding bishopric member Waddell that I think that was kind of a unfair cut. I will say he so Definitely. he does say he he does say um, but then he does have some nonsensical answer that he gives about the difference between the two. Um, so he wasn't like stunned by her question like that trailer makes it appear. It's a little bit of a clickbait, though. Would you agree with that, Ryan, the editing? It's kind of a clickbait thing, gets you interested. Or is, is it unfair, or is it clickbait, or is everything fair game? What do you think? Well, there's a there's a clickbaity level to it, like Colby said. I don't think Colby's wrong. I, I would push back a little bit in that I think he did pause in the actual thing, and, and his nonsensical answer, as you put it, kind of indicates that he was thrown off, I think, by the question and stunned and didn't really – like, I think if he was ready for a question like that, they would have had a nice polished answer for it. And his answer was, I don't remember specifically what it was, but I remember it being like, oh, that that was not a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see, because well, they leave us hanging on the trailer to get us to watch the episode. Yeah. We will see yeah. his response when we play through the full thing, which we're going to break yeah. up into sections right now. Yeah. Okay, so let's, uh, let's watch the first uh, section of this and then get you uh, get your guys' comments on it here. So this is a 60 Minutes, and the title of the 60 Minutes actual episode is Mormon Whistleblower, Church's Investment Firm Masquerades as a Charity. And this is uh, given to us by Sharon Alfonsi, which is a venerated and longtime 60 Minutes uh, host. I watch 60 Minutes every single week. Um, I for sure watch it. And so I was definitely looking forward to last week. So let's, uh, let's break it up here, and let's see what this first segment is and get some reaction. Every religion has its mysteries. One of the closest guarded secrets of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has been its wealth. Tonight, you will hear for the first time about its remarkable size from a former manager at the church's investment firm. David Nielsen says that during his nine years managing money at the church firm, the value of its investments ballooned past $100 billion. That would make it the largest treasure held by any religious fund in America. But instead of spending that money to do good, David Nielsen alleges it was used in ways that bent the law and broke his faith. 
The story will continue in a moment. Okay, so that's our first clip here. So first of all, who is David Nielsen? And uh, um, is he just some um, angry ex-Mormon who is a big-time axe to grind? Or, or who exactly is he? I know you did a big episode on that, Colby. Well, I've never actually talked about David Nielsen. I talked more about the SEC, um, the implications of the SEC report with Nemo, kind of to help an international audience understand what the SEC, um, like what the SEC is, what their mission is, what they've what they've done. But I'll just I'll just say this of David Nielsen. Um, my biggest impression after having watched this, I was not like there were no there were no real pieces of information I learned here uh, because I had read the story about you know David Nielsen that his his brother had given. Um, his whistleblower report to, I think it was the Washington Post, right? And so there were no surprises for me, but this is the first time I've actually gotten a chance to listen to David Nielsen and his reasons. And I'll just say from my view, he sounds like one of these Mormon renegades that I was, uh, you know, praising earlier. Like he really believed in the principles that the church taught him since the time he was little. He believed, it seems to me, like he believed in that truth and that integrity and that exactly like they say in this opening segment, that seeing the way the church actually managed things broke his faith. He came across as very honest, as very, um, as very having a lot of integrity to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, Ryan, he, he mentions Enzyme Peak in the, um, in the opening. What, what, is, what exactly is Enzyme Peak? So Enzyme Peak is a an investment firm. Um, you know, you can think of them as like you know hedge fund managers or or just sort of you know money managers. And but they have one client, and that client is the church. And and it's also owned by the church, Enzyme Peak. So <clears throat> they operate just like any other, let's say, broker who you could take your money to, except they're not accepting new clients. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and they take the church's money and they manage it to the best of their abilities. Um, and by all accounts, they do a very good job at it, um, and, you know, from the business standpoint. But, yeah, I think, um, you know, I think like a lot of church employees that you talk to, um, you know, a lot of people's perception of the church changes when they start to go work for the church. Not everybody's. But I think everybody's uh, testimonies get challenged at some point in church employment, whether it's inside peak or not. And, and that obviously did happen with uh, David Nelson. I think um, he talks about an you know, a little bit about that in the in the episode. I'm sure we'll watch those clips. Um, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the church has admitted that Enzyme Peak is worth roughly between 40 and 50 billion dollars. But the number that gets put around is that that is only the, the domestic stock portion of the investment fund, which the U.S. government requires entities to disclose. There is a number of uh, portions of Enzyme Peak, according to David Nielsen, that are not required by the government to disclose, and the church still has not disclosed those. So the, the number that gets bandied about a lot in this uh, particular episode, and from the intro that we heard, is the $100 billion to $150 billion figure, with the widow's might currently putting at in excess of $150 billion. Now, uh, before we get into the rest of the episode, I want to talk about that, because when people, if you Google it, you'll say the church is worth like $40 billion. But in the episode, they're talking about 150, 180. Well, what is the truth? I, I want to play this clip for you because this is really important. Last year, David Bednar fielded a question about Enzyme Peak and its worth at the National Press Club briefing back in May. And the reporter asked him about what was in Enzyme Peak. And his response, I think, is very instructive. Before we watch the rest of the 60 Minutes episode, I want to play this short clip for you. With over $100 billion in funds and assets, the LDS Church has more capability than any other church in the country to help eliminate poverty. What more could the church do in terms of humanitarian efforts here? If you take a look at the stock market, I don't think it's $100 billion anymore. <laughs> 
Okay, so th this is instructive. She asks, what about the $100 billion that's in Enzyme P? And does he say, no, there's not a hundred. The church has admitted to 40. Where are you getting this $100 billion from? What are you talking about? He doesn't deny it. In fact, he cracks a joke about it saying that if the stock market goes down, it might go lower than $100 billion. That's possible because most of the Enzyme P is a lot of his domestic stocks. So it's a tacit admission from him that Enzyme Peak is approximately where David Nielsen has said and where many other people have said. A any thoughts on that, guys? Uh, well, it's, oh, go ahead, Paul, go ahead. well, I was just going to praise your work, right? I think this is where your work is so, so critical. You know, the last report that you had laying out the church's actual property assets, because the way she asked that question was actually wholly incorrect, right? She's talking about how the church has over $100 billion in all of its assets. And that is, that is, what we're talking about in Enzyme Peak is the church's extra money. That is the church's war chest, their treasury that they use to make more money. So that's that's where the widow's mites estimates, I think, and the work that, that Ryan and his team have done really show how, no, the church isn't worth only $100 billion. I think the other thing I'll just point out is I don't understand why that was a laugh line and a joke. Like this is people's, this is people's, like that's where the term the widow's mite comes from, right? These are people's widow's mites and it's a laugh line to these guys. That, frankly, is disgusting to me. Your thoughts, Ryan? I mean, very similar to Colby. I, I'll push back on you saying that he's tacitly admit, uh, admitted to something. He hasn't admitted to anything. He, he, yeah, so, I mean, he admitted to nothing. Uh, and the $100 billion, as Colby kind of hinted at there, is really, it's not, the, the benchmark is not the stock portfolio. When, when the original Washington Post article came out back in, it was either late 19, early 2020, the original article about David Nelson's, you know, hundred billion dollar expose. The the stock portfolio was part of that, but it wasn't nearly the whole thing. I don't remember what the stock portfolio was worth at the time, but it was probably you know fifty billion in that range. It was thirty two billion when we uncovered it. Um, so so just to start off the bat, the hundred billion dollars is not about the stock market. It includes all kinds of other stuff. Um, and then it also, as far as I understand, does not include any real estate holdings, um, which we obviously had a story about. We talked about that earlier. Um, and that, you know, is on top of whatever hundred, hundred fifty billion number, hundred fifty billion dollar number that can be quantified with um, with Enzyme Peak. So yes, it was a poorly worded question, and it was not a real answer. It was really a deflection, a, a deflection disguised as an answer. And and he said just like is often the case with Mormon leaders. He spoke words, but said nothing. Okay, I'll also, oh, can I also point out that in that clip you played, he says billion, but in the actual exchange, he says million. He makes this Freudian That's slip true. of a million that the church ends up going back and correcting. Um, and, and I, you know, I don't know if that was completely unintentional or if it was, I'm going to assume it was completely unintentional, but I, I think it just helps contextualize $100 billion is so much money it's difficult to even conceptualize. And I think that's why he went to the 100 million. I don't think he was doing anything untoward. It's just that 100 billion is such a ridiculous amount of money that he made that slip back to million. Right. Um, just, just, just for clarification purposes, I, before I did this episode this week, I went back and listened to Lars Nielsen's uh, uh, complete, uh, I, uh, his complete expose that he put on the YouTube. And according to his information, there is a small portion of Enzyme Peak, which is in real estate. It's a small portion, less than 10% that is in commercial real estate that the church has bought. But yeah, that the church's normal portfolio of the $100 billion that it has that, uh, that 
Ryan McKnight and the Widow's Might has four. That's separate, but there is some small portion of Ensign Peak which is um, invested into commercial real estate. It is small, but it is there. Now, our next, uh, our next, uh, let's uh, let's let's keep it going here. Here's the next uh, clip here, where she talks about whether the church is a charity or not. I thought I was going to work for a charity. I thought that's what my skills were going to do, was help build the charity and do good with things. And the funds were never used for that. It was really a clandestine hedge fund. A clandestine hedge fund? Yeah. How so? Those funds weren't used the way they were appropriated to be used. So how were they being used? Well, once the money went in, it didn't go out. Okay, so his basic allegation here is that the church is not acting as a charity. Is that fair, Colby? Oh, I mean, absolutely. When we have leaders of the church, because I think in that same National Press Club meeting, Bednar also talks about how the mission of the church is not to feed the needy, that the church's mission is to you know, do its ecclesiastical work. And then the clip you shared from Kevin Pearson says the same thing. Like when people are telling you that it's not part of their, that it's not their primary mission, I guess, believe them. Like they've already admitted that their primary mission is not to act as a charity. I, yeah, I got it. And he, he also, uh, Ryan, he says that the uh, Ensign Peak is basically just a clandestine hedge fund. Is that accurate or is it a, or is it a charitable organization, 5013C, fulfilling its mission? I mean, I have no problem with what he's saying. I, you know, I'm an accountant, but I'm not, you know, like an investment expert. So I don't know um, how accurate that, that, that label is. But I've always held, even before we published about the 13 LLCs, I, I've always said um, publicly that the church wants you to believe that they're a religion that dabbles in business. But in reality, they're a business dabbling in religion. And I think Enzyme Peak and the ongoings that have been discovered over the years serves only to reinforce that point of view. Yeah, no, no, this next clip talks about how, why David Nielsen went to go work for Enzyme Peak to begin with. David Nielsen was a senior portfolio manager for the investment arm of the church called Enzyme Peak Advisors. In 2009, Nielsen, who says he was a devout Mormon, was recruited away from a lucrative job on Wall Street to work for the firm a block from church headquarters in Salt Lake City. You know this, Wall Street, you spend your skills working to make really rich people a little bit more rich, but there is something different about the prospect of putting your skills to work for something that you think is really gonna build the kingdom, it's really gonna make a difference. Yeah, so I mean, that's the reason that he he wanted to make a difference. And uh, uh, Ryan, what did he find out when he went to go work with Ensign Peak? Was he making a difference? Yeah, I mean, not the difference he thought he was going to make. I'm sure he did make a difference. He probably helped the church make money. Yeah, I think, again, like what I said earlier about a lot of people, even outside of Enzyme Peak, that go work for the church, they, they become disillusioned because they realize they just went to go work for just, just another company. And, and it's just another it's just another job at the end of the day that might actually even pay a little bit less than market value. Yeah. In fact, if you look at the outside, this is the Ensign Peak building itself. There's no logo. There's nothing that says Ensign Peak anywhere. There's nothing on the outside of the building. It's totally not a script. I mean, hey, guys, even the Mormon News Roundup has a logo. I mean, <laughs> you know, we I mean, everybody, uh, everybody wants to make a difference. You want to talk about secrecy, Colby. I mean, they are really trying to keep that clandestine hedge fund thing going. And, you know, the difference, obviously, is that a hedge fund, they have to pay capital gains on the on the monies that they, you know, when Warren Buffett uh, and Hershire Brack, uh, uh, Hershire, how to Berkshire Hathaway? When they make money, they have to pay. They have to pay a capital gains. But the church has a clandestine hedge fund with benefits, where that it's not a script. They're making money, and they don't have to make any gains, uh, pay any gains or any taxes on that whatsoever, right? 
Yeah, that's my understanding. I think that ent- at the entity level, so I'm on the review team for the Widow's Might. And so we've looked in at, at this and I've had exchanges with the, you know, the, the person known as the Widow's Might about this exact issue. Um, the church describes Enzyme Peak as an integrated auxiliary, which means that it would not be paying tax the way that, a, a you know, the to use what David Nielsen was talking about, if he's working for some private equity hedge fund. Um, that's basically doing the exact same thing he was doing for Enzyme Peak. They would be paying tax and the church is not paying tax. That's exactly right. I think they're also exempt from a lot of um, other reporting requirements and oversight requirements. And so I think that's kind of where we see this connection between what David Nielsen's, you know, informed us of and the uh, the SEC order and settlement with the SEC. Yeah. The next clip here, they talk about how the difference between Ensign Peak and the Gates Foundation, for instance, and they talk about whether Ensign Peak, it truly is a charity or whether it's just masquerading as a charity. But Nielsen says he grew troubled by what he saw at Ensign Peak. He says the firm used false records and statements to masquerade as a charity, stockpiling money and misleading church members. Every year, the church collects an estimated $7 billion in contributions from its 17 million members. The church expects members to contribute about 10% of their income, a practice known as tithing. Explain how the tithe is supposed to be used. Tithing is what's used to build buildings. It's what's used to pay the light bills. Tithing is what's used to uh, operate some of the church's programs. Whatever's left over, about a billion dollars a year, is put into a reserve fund at Ensign Peak and invested. Because Ensign Peak is registered as a nonprofit, it all grows tax-free. David Nielsen says since it was created in 1997, the reserve fund has swelled beyond $100 billion, twice the size of Harvard's endowment or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So the money just keeps coming into Ensign Peak. And according to David Nielsen, there's been almost no withdrawals um, and that the church is just masquerading as a charity. Uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? This last clip here, Ryan. Yeah. Um, you know, I think you know, there's a lot to unpack there. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't want to necessarily dive into too much of, you know, what's legal or not. Um, I, I, my understanding on the IRS side of it, it, it's not so much that they had money growing tax-free because 501c3s or, or nonprofits, you know, whatever their classifications are that, that makes them not, not subject to federal tax, they are allowed to invest money and grow investments tax-free. Um, I think the problem that, that comes in is, and he hints at it there at the end where there were no withdrawals, it's, you know, to what end are you investing the money? Um, and if you're not... Uh, turning it around and using it to further some sort of the charitable cause or the charitable nature that you're declaring your organization to be of. I think that's when you start to, to run into the muddy waters of like, um, you know, whether or not you're breaking the law, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely does. Any thoughts on that last clip, uh, uh, Colby? Well, I just come back to the earlier thought I had, um, you know, when I was talking about Bednar's joke at people's expense, like this is not the church's money. Like this is the church. This is the, the money of church members. And I just find it so obscene that they grew it to this extent under false pretenses. Like I, you know, um, obviously I'm not as old as like my parents or my grandparents who paid tithing their entire lives. But like my wife and I put off buying a home because of our obligation, what we felt like was our, our obligation to pay tithing. Like it has real effects in people's lives. And the fact that they feel that they can do this with other people's money without being open about 
uh, open and transparent about where that money's going. Like I can say definitively, if I had known that my sacrifices were just going to build the church's hedge fund, I would not have paid. Like I know that for a fact. Um, and so I just find it obscene and disgusting and that it's all done in the name of Jesus just honestly makes me sick. I don't see how anyone can square this behavior with the New Testament Jesus. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Jesus because that's going to be in the next clip. He, he's going to talk about why he's going to he's going to address what you specifically said. Why was this fund just left to grow? And he's going to talk about how Jesus is supposed to come again and whether this fund was to be used by Jesus in his second coming. Let's uh, queue up this next section. Could solve big problems with a hundred billion dollars. And is that the thing that bothers you about all this? I thought we were going to change the world, and we just grew the bank account. Did any of your former bosses explain how the money was going to be used one day? The answer was always the second coming. And it's a bit tongue in cheek, but deep down, I think a lot of the employees really did believe that. Yeah, so this brings up a big question. What problems could this world, uh, could we solve with? According to the widow's mind, there's about $165 billion right now because the stock market is really on a rebound. It's really up. Um, it maybe was as low as when David when David Vednar said the hundred billion at the National Press Club. That was when the stock market was at one of its lowest levels in, since the pandemic. But it's rebounded. So that's the question: What problems could we solve with the hundred and sixty-five billion dollars liquid that is currently sitting in Enzyme Peak? And do we really need to save this money if Jesus comes again? Does he really need any money? These are the fundamental questions that this segment brings up. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Ryan? Well, you know, my assessment on all of that from talking to you know, when I was back investigating this and speaking to insiders and employees there and former employees, um, you know, that whole second coming line was often said as a joke, as a throwaway. They never actually thought that that's what they were doing. Um, but that the real issue that they were running into was that anytime upper management would seek um, direction from the first presidency and the first presidency, for those that don't know, were the ones who oversaw technically this fund, even though they just kind of gave Enzyme Peak free reign, but technically they were the ones in charge of this fund, the oversight. Um, and anytime they sought any kind of clarification on direction to go in, you know, what are goals that we're trying to accomplish, that they they were never able to get clear answers. And so they just moved forward in in the mindset of let's make the best investments we can, you know, as professionals and whatever happens, happens. So there was really, I think the issue was, is that there was no direction. I think the church never expected any of this to happen you know when they started investing money back before they had enzyme peak and and the money grew i can't remember what the number was but they talked about it where they decided oh at this point maybe we should create enzyme peak about I seven billion seven billion yeah, seven billion and then they they broke off the enzyme peak I, I just don't think they put a lot of thought into like well what happens if this reaches you know billions and billions of dollars and so now there's you know and, and they've actively tried to hide it because they don't want you know, it, there is an, a Wall Street Journal article after the Washington Post article where the the um, the interviewer was able to get an audience with some of the top church leaders there in Salt Lake City um, that are running this stuff. And they they flat out said on the record, you know, we kept this secret because we didn't want it to affect how people pay their tithing. Right. You're talking about um, Roger Clark, the head of Enzyme Peak. That's the article you're I referencing. I don't know that he was the one that said that. And I don't even yes. know if he was in that article. Is, is, is this the article that was written by Ian Lovett? Yeah, it's the yes, the Washington Post. He they talked to the no, no, not the Washington Post. Clark. No, we're talking about a different thing. Um, the Wall Street Journal published an yeah, article. Yeah, Wall Street Journal. Yes, Wall Street Journal. Okay. Roger Clark. We never wanted okay. he, the quote was we never wanted to give the members a reason not to uh, make a contribution. That's the direct quote. Yeah, and I think the other side of that coin too, just as valid from their perspective, is that um, they want to keep keep, uh, keep this stuff secret for the sake of a lot of these lawsuits that they're getting. 
because it's a lot harder to negotiate a hundred thousand dollar, two hundred thousand dollar, one million dollar uh, settlement when there's clear and convincing evidence um, that they're they're worth all this money. It, you know, the the lawyers for these you know victims who are suing the church, you know, would have a lot more you know negotiating power knowing that knowing exactly how much the church is worth. Yeah, Colby, you said that if you had known how much was in Endline Peak, you would not have made a contribution. Would it have helped if Roger Clark or others or David Nielsen had told you that, yes, this money's in there and we're going to be saving it for Jesus on his second coming? Would that have helped? No, because that logic makes absolutely no sense. So in Mormon theology, Jesus is the one that created this world. I can't imagine why he would need like U.S. currency. It, like if he literally shaped the world, what would he ever have to do with U.S. currency when he comes back? That doesn't make any sense to me. I, I do want to echo one thing Ryan just said. I like how Ryan can see that this was unintentional. Uh, and I agree with that. Um, when I'm talking earlier about how obscene it is, I mean, you know, to where it's gotten right now. I think um, my faith transition and just exploring epistemology and finding a lot more room um, for a lot more room to have grace for other people. I completely agree with Ryan. This was unintentional. The, I think putting the money away, that original $7 billion to, to grow it as an investment account, it was a wise investment decision. It was a wise business decision. And that's where I think it comes back to Ryan's comment about how the church really is a business that sometimes dabbles in religion. And so I, I just want to publicly say that I think it was unintentional. I don't think it was done like under some uh, conspiracy to cheat people out of money. I think they actually believe this stuff. I just don't think they've thought through the implications because I think if you think through the implications, you can't believe it. Like I just said, it doesn't make any sense that Jesus is going to come back and be like, hey, where's my money? I need my money to reshape this world. Like that doesn't make any sense. And, and, and I think also it's important to add that, you know, the church's history of being averse to sort of admitting any kind of mistake or wrongdoing puts them in a situation where they're instead of admitting, hey, you know what? This was like something we did and it kind of got out of hand. It got away from us. We're going to correct course and use this money for other things. Instead of doing that and recognizing the situation, they just come up with these band-aid throwaway line explanations of, you know, oh, it's for the second coming. Oh, you know, it's 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 wise to have a, a, a nest egg. You know, the church would be foolish not to do this. You know, that's what they have all their members saying right now. Um, you know, it all ignores you know, the issues that Colby brings up and or really just any sort of objective observer would bring up with hoarding away this much cash. Yeah. Now, the next section here talks about that there have, according to David Nielsen, there have been a couple of disbursements from Ensign Peak's investment funding. That's not the treasury account, not the checking account from the actual investment account. And uh, let's see what those disbursements were for, according to him. Publicly, church leaders called it a rainy day fund. But in 2013, Nielsen says one of his bosses shared this document at a meeting that showed $1.4 billion from the fund went to a mall being built on land owned by the church. And $600 million was used to prop up a for-profit church-owned insurance company called Beneficial Life. Look, I'm not an expert on charities, but I've been around the block enough to know that charitable organizations can't bail out for-profit businesses and maintain their terrible status. And so when they gave this money to bail out a for-profit venture, what was your reaction? What are we doing? Like, how is this okay? Okay, so that's my question. Uh, Ryan, you're an accountant. Um, uh, can a, uh, a not-for-profit business take portions of its uh, you know, investments and bail out a for-profit venture? Are you allowed to, is this like crossing the streams in Ghostbusters? Is it, uh, don't, don't do it or can you shed some light on that? 
Well, I, I do feel like I'm a pretty good and accomplished accountant, but this is definitely a topic that is like nowhere near the type of accounting that I do. <laughs> so um, I'm, I, I would, it, it, it very well may be legal because I do know the church goes to great lengths to try to make sure they don't break the law with this kind of stuff. Um, I've actually seen, you know, firsthand some evidence of that. So um, is it illegal or not? You know, I really don't know. Did they do it right? I don't know. For me, the biggest issue, and, and I and I also do want to say that he's not the one that, that, you know, made that information to life first, by the way. The fact that they bailed out Beneficial Life and put $1.4 billion into City Creek has, has been discovered even before Mormon leaks started. Um, you can go back and find. But but I think, you know, he he comes with a little bit more uh, maybe credibility when talking about it maybe than when it's been disclosed in the past for me the, the the key here is are they being transparent in how they're spending their money they want to go and bail out beneficial life with this tithing money uh build the city creek mall with this tithing money and it's not illegal have at it but just be open and honest about it so that the stakeholders of the organization the tithe payers can make fully informed decisions when they're writing that check and signing the line. Okay, let me let me ask you this, uh, Colby. You know, it seems to me that the core of Nielsen's argument is that there was no separation of monies at Ensign Peak between the for-profit and the church donations. So that was basically all commingled into one account, which basically means that you get the tax exemptions from being a not-for-profit, but then you're engaging in for-profit uh, operations like bailing out for-profit companies and uh, that could potentially be an issue. Do I have that right? And is that a legal issue or are you familiar with that? I, I'm not an expert in that in that type of financial regulation. So I don't want to speak to whether it's illegal or legal. If I had to guess, I'm going to guess along with Ryan that there are certain ways you can set that up so that it is legal. I think that's where, I, but I think that's all a red herring in the sense that I completely agree with Ryan. What this is really about is this is about transparency. Like none of this is the church's money. I can't stress that enough. The church doesn't have any money aside from what it makes from its for-profit businesses. But even that was started with seed money from individual people contributing their widow's mites. And that's why I think the transparency is so key. You know, we saw the same types of defenses, um, same types of apologetic defenses about the Arizona Bisbee case. Like the, the church didn't do anything strictly legally wrong, but at some point, and this is weird coming from a lawyer, right? But at some point, what's strictly legally wrong and what people are reasonably expecting a church or, or reasonably expecting a church to behave, the ways they're reasonably expecting a church to behave, become much more important to me. And I don't, I don't see how anyone could maintain that the church at the very minimum wasn't misleading. I think about the... For, in particular, in connection with City Creek, I think about when that happened. I, I remember I was, you know, a teenager when President Hinckley talked about that in conference and said, you know, no, no tithing money will be used to go towards this. And that was true in the sense that they had a very specific definition of what tithing money is, which is like they were using the returns on invested tithing money. And so right. th this is what's kind of shaking out in the Huntsman lawsuit that I've been following pretty closely. Um, it's incredibly misleading to ha have a private definition of what is tithing and what isn't tithing. And one yeah. of the things we've learned from David Nielsen is that they didn't treat them differently. They treated tithing and the returns on tithing as the same thing in the Enzyme Peak account. And that's where I think it's just, again, incredibly misleading. And it makes me really sad for people who've contributed for decades and the money that they thought was going towards building the kingdom of God went towards building a shopping mall. Was it strictly illegal? <clears throat> I don't believe it It was, but was it wrong? Absolutely. I have no qualms about whether it was wrong and misleading. Yeah. And I just want to say too, like, um, you know, 
it's not necessarily a, a perfect apples to apples comparison, but you know, I, I'm involved in, and I don't want to give away too much about, you know, what I do to make a living, but you know, I am involved in, in fund accounting um, where uh, government grant money that's from taxpayers um, is involved. And we have um, very strict regulations about, you know, if there's any excess funds of these tax, you know, these, of this tax money that that we wanted to would want to invest number one it would have to be invested in in principal protected vehicles but the any interest earned on the money has to be used for the same purpose that the money was originally intended for we can't go and take tax dollars uh you know make a bunch of interest and then you know pay out fat bonuses to employees just because we want to do that you know i mean it has to be used for the same purposes and um I'm guessing there aren't as strict a rules related to, you know, tithing donations from, you know, private citizens. That is different, you know, from tax dollars. But I think the mentality is a sound mentality. You know, if the church had this sort of ethical uh, outlook on it to where they said, hey, you know, we've got this excess tithing, we're going to invest it, but we're going to make sure we pump it back into the charitable, pur charitable purposes of the church or the uplifting of the church. Um, you know, I think we might be having a little bit of a different discussion. Uh, absolutely. Now, this next uh, clip, as we as Ryan, you well know, uh, David Nielsen is not really the first whistleblower on Enzyme Peak. And there's an oblique reference to the first whistleblower, which really helped us realize what was happening with the shell companies in this next clip. And I'm greatly looking forward to hearing your uh, reaction to it. David Nielsen says he hit his breaking point in 2018 after a website called Mormon Leaks linked church members to companies that existed only on paper. Those shell companies held billions of dollars in stocks and bonds. Right. So that's we're talking about the original uh, uh, Mormon leaks whistleblower who uh, I really wanted to ask you this. Do you know who this person is or was Mormon leaks set up in a way that you couldn't verify the identity of the people who submitted their documents to you? That's a great question. Mormon leaks was set up in a way that if a person wanted to reach out to us without us finding out who they were, they could. But of course, there is no, nothing stopping a, a source from from not going to those lengths to protect their identity. Um, in this particular situation, I don't remember how the initial contact happened, but we ultimately did end up having like a phone conversation and, and things like this. And, you know, I'm sure we exchanged some emails, I believe. I don't know if he had used his real name in that or not. I don't think I ever knew his real name, but I have spoke to him on the phone. The person who sort of tipped us off to this, they had they kind of stumbled across the information and they weren't quite sure if it was legit or what to do with it. So they kind of, you know, had to step in. Um, I actually, interestingly enough, when the SEC thing came out, he reached back out to me and I hadn't spoken to him since the original story back in whenever that was 2018, I think it was. Um, and, you know, he was kind of kicking himself that he hadn't gone the whistleblower road, route, I think, wow. um, you know, it, it really had, to be honest with you, it hadn't occurred to any of us at the time that there was any potential illegalities going on. I kind of assumed, well, I mean, if the church went and created these 13 shell companies, they must have had it on good authority that legally they could do it. Um, so I don't think the idea of it being a potential whistleblower case ever came, you know, dawned on any of us. But he, yeah. he, he'd reached out to me a couple months ago when this story first resurfaced and, and had you know, said he was considering coming forward, which I told him. I said, I mean, it's up to him. Um, yeah, but he, I still don't, don't know his, his full name. I have his phone number, though. But um, so, yeah, that was uh, that was a interesting time. Um, I think, I don't know if he said it in that clip we just watched or he says it, you know, in the, 
as the 60 minutes things goes forward. But, you know, the managers that they had listed on those forms, which were the people that I tried to call, and I kind of outlined this in our wiki entry, um, they were not people that were the decision makers. They were really not the people who sh should even be signing those forms. Um, and I remembered noticing that at the time because, and if you want, I can go into a little bit about how we verified everything if you'd like, because it's kind of interesting. Um, yeah, here's those 13 companies that are on your site here, yeah. Cortland Advisors, Elk Fork Partners. When you click on them, you do get the name of the person who's involved with it. And they, uh, and uh, let's see, David Johnson is employed by the Mormon Church. Very, uh, you know, normal sounding names with a limited social media presence. So the, the, the person that you're referencing, obviously, he's yeah. the one who discovered the IP addresses, which matched up with these 13 shell companies. And, um, you know, he's the one who brought that well, to your it attention. It wasn't quite like that. I mean... <laughs> he didn't discover the IP addresses. Well, I mean, or the URLs, I guess. David Johnson is the person that the church listed on the on the managing paperwork. Right. But yeah. mm -hmm. and they had different names on all of them. I think there was one or two that had the same name. Yeah. But for the most part, it was almost like ten. It was like ten unique people. And one of the things that happened, we were trying to verify this because here, okay, here's what happened. The guy contacts us, says. It, it, the way it went, it was something like, you know, I, I was looking at this list that you know that somebody put on Reddit of all the URLs that, that that show up under the church's, you know, who is, right? And he's like, and, and I don't know if you guys have seen that document. It's floating around out there somewhere. It's 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 thousands of URLs that the church publicly owns because, the you know, the who is isn't private. And 99% of these URLs, even the, inact, even the ones that are not actually being used, you can kind of see based on the name of like why the church would want that URL. Like there's some sort of direct or indirect connection to the church in the name and he had as he was going through this list he had noticed these 13 urls that number one were created on the same day and number two the names had no obvious connection to religion and so he just started googling because all of those urls there was no actual website they were just like you know placeholders or whatever you want to call them so he started googling the names of these llcs and he came across these 13 F filings, but he couldn't prove was that it was the same. Like, while unlikely it's possible that these are just different investment LLCs that are happen to have the same name as the churches. Like that's theoretically possible. So what, what, one of the things that I was able to do, well, one of the things that we did was, is we, and Ethan did this and he verified that each URL was in fact owned by the church and that it wasn't some confusion in the who is system. And he did that by doing some, I don't know, cyber security thing that I don't even understand, but he sent some sort of a ping through the internet and it pinged back from the church's servers or something like that. But, but the other thing too, is on these 13 Fs, when I saw these names and they were all very generic names, I happened to have at the time I had a, uh, a church directory, an employee directory. We never leaked it because why are we going to put those phone numbers out there? Right. But somebody had sent it to us. And so I start to look these names up in the employee directory, and some of them showed as being employed by Enzyme Peak Advisors in the directory. They were all, as I can remember, low-level, like staff accountant or something like that. But a number of them were employed on the church side of it. They weren't even employees of Enzyme Peak Advisors, which really threw me off. Um, and I, I called all of them you know, the numbers that were in the employee directory, I got a hold of, I think it was two or three people and only one of them spoke to me enough to where I was able to sort of confirm what was going on. Um, but uh, yeah, and and I think he talks about, David Nielsen talks about how they used these low level, people who in a real business would not be signing these forms, 
signs right. these forms. Yeah, that, he's going to get into that in the next clip. Now, is there anything, um, Colby, that you want to say about this last uh, this last section? I'll just be real quick. And the only thing I'd say is that the uh, the level of obfuscation that was engaged in to hide these shell companies, the Widow's Might has a report that kind of lays this all out. And if you uh, if you amalgamate all the different misrepresentations on those 13 F filings, there were over 600,000 misrepresentations, material misrepresentations. This was not, I've heard a lot of apologetics over this, this, and I'm not a securities expert, but there have been so many apologetics. They're like, this is the equivalent of a, uh, a parking ticket or a speeding fine. That is not the case. I can just tell you, having worked for a state level regulator, for a regulatory agency like the SEC to step in and take action against a religion is huge in and of itself. I know that the fine was a lot smaller than people expected, but what the church engaged in regarding these shell companies and attempting to hide these assets was serious. It was a serious level of obfuscation. Like I said, take a look. I would encourage people to take a look at that Widow's Might report because it lays out how coordinated and how deliberate this really was. You know, Ryan was talking about deliberately using names, low-level people, and deliberately using names of people that were ungoogleable. That's like, like laid out in the SEC report. And so that's yeah. just my only thought is like this was a very coordinated, serious effort to maintain confidentiality or secrecy. And David Nielsen, I think, talks about that in one of these yeah. later clips. And Ryan, you talked about in your last uh, comments, you talked about the uh, anonymity, you talked about the 13F forms, and that's what she's going to talk about. The federal re require, if you ma maintain a large portfolio of greater than $100 billion in domestic stock assets, you're required to disclose that to the government and to the public for a number of reasons. And you do so by filing 13F forms, uh, which are federally required. And this next section, as you, uh, which you mentioned right now, this next section talks about that federal requirement. Um, let's go over that. What nobody knew outside church leadership was those assets were actually controlled by Ensign Peak. Nielsen says the firm called an emergency meeting. What was the explanation? These entities were to hide the assets from the members. The chief investment officer said that if we were to change and start reporting these securities in our own name, it would bring undue attention to the firm and that that attention would be potentially damaging. And after the meeting, I went and confronted him. What do you mean potentially damaging? And he said, Dave, we're going to lose our tax exempt status. I knew in that moment that I was in the wrong place. Okay. What's your hot take on that, Colby? Uh, my hot take is the David Nielsen had the meme moment of are we the baddies right there. He's describing the are we the baddies moment. And I think um, I think anyone who goes through a real faith crisis and sees the integrity of the church laid bare goes through moments like that, uh, because I I had moments like that during my faith crisis where, um, you know, the first Mormon stories episode I ever listened to was Matt Easton's story about uh, Holland attacking him for his, you know, for affirming his sexual sexual identity and his sexual um his sexual orientation at BYU's commencement and honestly the day I listened to that I just sobbed in my office like I, I barely got any work done that entire day because I just sobbed in my office at the complicity that I had in this system and I think David Nielsen is experiencing the same thing and like I, I said earlier at the top he seems like a very earnest and a very honest person based on this interview yeah That's so basically 
basically my sum up here is filing the correct 13F forms would be potentially damaging. That's the word they use, potentially damaging. Being honest with the government, honest with the members, that would be potentially damaging. And what is the damage that could happen? Well, that's to, uh, number one, make the uh, clandestine, what he called the secret hedge fund, clandestine hedge fund, uh, it would be ma making it made known and also potentially losing tax exempt status. That is the biggest fear of Enzyme Peak. Um, and uh, the, the two biggest fears of Enzyme Peak being discovered in the first place and losing tax exempt status. Now, notice that the church's biggest fears, they all revolve, they don't revolve around evil in the world or, or doing good or, or fighting Satan or anything like that. All of the biggest fears of the church are around securing money, ensuring that future donations will continue to roll in. Any thoughts on this uh, last segment here, Ryan? I mean, I'll just throw in that, um, you know, back when we first published about those uh, LLCs, I had. Uh, you know, a source that was close to Enzyme Peak that told me about this all hands on deck meeting. So I can corroborate what the, what Nielsen has said here that there was an emergency meeting called that morning. They were not expecting our report, um, and um, it was uh, they were stressing big time from what I understand. Yeah, it seemed like a very stressful situation. And he talks about in this next clip about whether the church is really a charity or is the church a business. And that seems to be really kind of the core of what 60 Minutes is getting at. If you want to find a hidden agenda, maybe the hidden agenda is that they're trying to make it seem like the church is really a business that dabbles in religion rather than a religion that dabbles in business. And let's see what David Nielsen says here. He resigned in 2019 and filed a 74-page whistleblower complaint with the Internal Revenue Service alleging that Ensign Peak violated its tax-exempt status by moving money to for-profit businesses. Okay, let me just sum up here what, what I take away from David Nielsen. There, he has a threefold argument with the issues with Ensign Peak from my perspective. Number one, Ensign Peak skirted federal law in an effort to remain secret. That's, that's number one. Number two, EPA mingled tax-exempt donations with other for-profit businesses, which is potentially an issue. And number three, there are no withdrawals from Ensign Peak that happened in the last 20, uh, 25 years, except for bailing out of the City Creek Mall and the propping up of Beneficial Life, which calls into question its purpose as an auxiliary to the church and its overall tax-exempt nature. Um, what are your thoughts on this last clip here, Colby? Well, um... You know, it's odd. I, I don't even believe in the divinity of Jesus anymore, but I keep coming back to scriptures in my mind. I think my my biggest takeaway, and this is the scripture that's kind of resonated with me, is I've thought a lot about this. Um, Christ says at one point during the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And I don't see how you can be, you know, the one of the largest private landowners in the entire country. You can have an investment account that, you know, dwarfs anyone but you know, uh, Berkshire Hathaway. I just don't see how you can have those objectively true facts out there and say that the church's treasure, what it really cares about is anything other than actual treasure. That's my takeaway. Yeah. Any, any thoughts on that last segment there, Ryan? Yeah. I mean, just I'll echo what, uh, what Colby said, you know, and nice. I, my line is, my line is always, I don't really care what the church does with their money personally. You know, if they're breaking the law. Hopefully they get found out and held accountable. But I just want to see them just be upfront and honest about it. That's all. That's not just incorrect. That's flat out wrong. Christopher Waddell says David Nielsen didn't have a full picture of Ensign Peak. Waddell is one of three church bishops who oversees finances. Now, I, we keep this is one of the biggest talking points that we get from the church from the 60 Minutes and from the church's official responses. The biggest takeaway from the church's defense is David Nielsen doesn't have the complete picture. 
Okay, that's not really a defense. What I, we, I want to know, what is it that David Nielsen got wrong? Fine, he doesn't have the complete picture. I can appreciate that. I'm sure that there's people who know more about it than he does. But they never say, spoiler alert, what it is that he's got. Okay, he has an incomplete picture. What is it that he's messed up? What are his misunderstandings that are factually mistaken? We never get to hear about that. And um, I, I don't know, it's just kind of ironic to me. It's a really common apologetic, though. I mean, anytime you see, whether it's on Reddit or Facebook or whatever, you see someone talking about a problematic quote of church leaders, and I, I've seen this on every single video interview that I've done about Mormonism. It's always this apologetic of, well, if you understood it all in context, of course, the part they don't say is that if you ask for the entirety of the context, they're never going to give it to you. So it's just a, it's just an easy dodge to say what they're clearly trying to paint David Nielsen as is some type of dishonest, disgruntled employee uh, you know who was there for nine years and they obviously headhunted him it's just it's just not a convincing apologetic the church will say stuff like this like well you don't have the full context but oftentimes context doesn't make it any better right like just thinking about problematic quotes from church leaders or problematic activity from church leaders oftentimes additional context makes it worse and so i just find that that type of apologetic just completely unconvincing okay let's keep it going Church, we believe that someday there, Jesus Christ will return, but that's not why we have those resources. It's for the continuing operation and for the future. David Neal. Okay, so he says that the, the, the Ensign Peak is for continuing operations, but what we know is that Ensign Peak is not for continuing operations. The tithing that is brought into the church is around $7 billion. The church's expenses are $6 billion. Hence, we don't need Ensign Peak for current operations. That's the entirety of David Nielsen's thrust is that it's not being used for church operations at all. It's only being used for a bailing out a mall and bailing out uh, 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 the Deseret Mutual Insurance Company. He seems to be missing the entire point. Yeah, and I think for people who are more interested in like the technicalities of this, because I know there are multiple accounts inside of Enzyme Peak that Waddell's really talking about here. I just point people to the additional resource. Mormonism Live had Spencer Anderson on, a financial, or I think he's like an investment professor at University of Illinois, if I remember correctly. Anyways, yes, they, so. they did an entire like three hour episode on covering the same material. And I think just with, you know, obviously we have certain perspectives to share, but Spencer's perspective, I think, is very interesting to hear. And so I point people to that resource if they have additional questions. Any reaction on this last segment here, Ryan? No, I mean, it just, you know, their, their apologetics suck because there is no way to explain. There's no way to explain away what they're doing. And that's why he's the apologetics going, suck. He's going to try in this next segment to do apologetics, and he tries to have a delineation between – he doesn't like the word bailout because bailouts, those are bad. However, investments, those are considered good. So he's going to discuss City Creek Mall and Beneficial Life. Let's see how, how he tries to cast it. And for the future. David Nielsen alleged that Ensign Peak violated its tax-exempt status by directing money to church businesses. How would you characterize how that money was used? The church actually owned Beneficial Life. And unfortunately, the church had the resources to bail out Beneficial Life during the financial crisis, 2008, 2009. In the mall? The mall was not a bailout. The mall was an investment. Right. So that's the difference. Bailouts, those are bad. Investments, those are good. And I tried to look this up. Like I said, I'm not a tax expert or anything. But from my understanding, nonprofits can give loans to other for-profit entities in an effort to raise monies. So I think what he's trying to say here, from my humble reading, is that the bailout to beneficial life was just a loan to beneficial life, which they are still recouping the costs for, and that's okay to do as a nonprofit in order to generate income. Okay, any thoughts on this uh, last section here, guys? Yeah, I just, I mean, 
it, it's it's all meaningless if we don't actually have any kind of support to back up what he's saying. It's just meaningless. He could be right. He could be wrong. Um, you know, there's really just no way to know. And I also think, you know, to to the theme of a lot of what we've been talking about, you know, a lot of this is just red herrings to what the real issue is. Yeah. Now, this next section here, I want you to pay particular attention to his mannerisms because she's going to ask him point blank about the $150 billion. Now, if someone were to ask me, um, and they said, you know, D-Base, uh, it's, I, I looked at your bank account and I see that you have a hundred million dollars in there. Let me tell you what I would, I'd be like, I would be shocked. I would be like, what? I would be like, no, I don't have a hundred million in my bank. What are you talking about? A hundred million? What are you talking about? So the church has admitted to 40 billion. She's going to ask him about the 150 billion. Look at his mannerisms. Look at his face. You can get a lot from that by the fact that he is not shocked by this number at all. He makes no defense to the $150 billion figure. Watch his mannerisms. And you are receiving returns on oh, that. Oh, absolutely. Investment. Yeah, it was an investment. Waddell says the insurance company has paid back most of the bailout money, but the church would not disclose the details of that deal or the mall investment. Unlike other nonprofits, religious organizations don't have to fully disclose all financial information to the IRS. What is the value right now of Ensign Peak's assets? Yeah, that's something I can't I can't share with you right now. I know there've been there've been reports on on approximates and that kind of thing, and and that's as far as we can go right it's now. It's been estimated at 150 billion dollars. Does that sound correct? Um, that's an estimate uh, that some have made. Are we in the ballpark or no? Um, we have significant resources. Okay, so how would you describe his uh, the, the way he tried to navigate not disclosing the amount? It, here's the problem. He can't he can't say anything because it's wrong. The the real number is a lot higher, but he can't say that. So he just says they're not going to say because he knows that the number is wrong. But the problem is is that the follow up question of well, then what is the right number is a number that's higher than that. And so they just are going to answer the way he answered. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the rumor on the street, by the way, is that uh, City Creek, remember when David Nielsen got the photos that says it was $1.4 billion? The, the rumor on the street is that City Creek actually overran that budget by quite a bit, and it could be a, a, a lot higher. So that bailout could have been a lot more than $1.4 billion. And, and don't forget, by the way, that David Nielsen has also recently leaked additional information to the Senate Finance Committee, which was not in the original whistleblower leaks, uh, a whistleblower documentation to the IRS. We don't, by the way, we don't know, at least I don't know if he's leaked also to the SEC. I don't have that information. I haven't been able to find that information, but there is more shoes that David Nielsen, yes, he, he wrote a 90-page document to the IRS. There could be more shoes that he has and more, um, I don't know, more tricks in his handbook that he's given to the Senate Finance Committee, which we still are not privy to at this time. Any thoughts on this last clip here, Col Colby? I, I agree with Ryan in the sense that if the church wants to maintain that they don't have $150 billion, then they need to like open their books and be transparent. They could, and Sharon's going to get to this in just a second. They could clear all of this up in 10 minutes <laughs> if they disclosed and they won't. And so to me, you don't get the benefit of the doubt from me when you were deliberately trying to hide this, you've gone to all these levels of obfuscation and then you won't open your books. Like, uh, you know, fool me once, shame on me, fool me, or fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not willing to believe anything that comes out of their mouth without substantiation. Yeah, he said he can't share that information. Actually, technically, more accurately, he said he won't share the information. Of course, the church could share that information. I know? would say that this was probably this, like, they absolutely prepped Waddell going into this meeting, like someone did, some PR handler, I'm sure. That was probably the number one thing they said, is you can't, like, that would that was his prime directive. You cannot disclose the amount of assets, period. Very true. Give us a sense of what percentage is going out the door mm -hmm. of the money under 
management. Mm -hmm. To be honest, we've, we've never looked at it as a percentage. We looked at it based on needs to make sure that we're comfortable with how many years worth we have in case of, of financial difficulties, in case of financial crisis, to make sure that we can continue church operations. We just want to make sure that that, that is sufficient. Okay, so <laughs> a lot to say about that last one. I mean, my goodness, uh, he doesn't know what percentage of money is being. So you're you're the sacred steward. He's in the bishop, presiding bishopric. You're the sacred steward of that widow's might, and you have no idea what percentage of assets that you have going on. You just have no idea because we we've never even thought about it. what an interesting perspective. I wonder if we should think about what percentage of funds we're sending out of Ensign Peak. A spoiler alert: that percentage is basically zero. I guess that's why he hasn't thought of it. Well, he he probably doesn't know because uh, he doesn't want if he doesn't know, really, it's because he doesn't want to know, because that information is, I guarantee you, readily available to him. If he really if he wanted to call up one of his subordinates and be like, hey, I need you to run a report for me, they'd probably have it to him in, in relatively short order and be able to give him that information. Yeah, and I think I think what this really shows is it, it adds a second witness to what Ryan was saying earlier about how a lot of this is probably unintentional. That doesn't make it excusable, but it's probably unintentional. The people that are managing Enzyme Peak are like a wind-up toy, right? They've been given their direction, and it was Roger Clark for a long time. I think he resigned in like 2020 or probably retired in like 2020 as the head. Um, but the they're a wind-up toy in the sense that they've been given their direction, right? Their job is to take the original $7 billion investment and to grow it as big as possible. And so I guess what I'm saying is for members that think, you know, Irene gave a talk in 2017 about how Jesus Christ personally leads this church in its daily details. I don't know how you can like listen to Waddell talk about stuff like this and believe that because the, when you really get a, a firm look at how the church operates, it is obvious that you have like, it's like any other large employer or, you know, governmental organization. Like you have people who are staying in their lane and you have other people who are staying in their lane. And that's why sometimes the church gets crosswise with itself is because there is no like cohesive, omnipotent mind behind all of this stuff. Right. It, it's so clear. Well, yeah, well when you when you try to scratch that itch, Colby, of the of Jesus Christ, you know, leading every aspect of the church, what you ultimately end up finding out from the person you're talking to is, well, they only control the good aspects of the church, the aspects that we can, you know, explain away. And then all of a sudden, you know, when, whenever you bring up something that is potentially problematic, well, well, you know, God's not involved at that level of detail, you know, and, you know, ultimately, if you really were to go down the whole list of the things that, you know, Jesus Christ is supposedly involved with and, and really scrutinize them, you'd probably find out that they couldn't justify it for anything, really. So it's, it's another one of those throwaway lines. It's a meaningless um, platitude that, that uh, you know, Mormon leaders like to, to, to throw out there. It sounds good. It feels good, but can't really hold up to even the, the smallest amount of scrutiny. Yeah, and also notice he says that the Waddell says that he looked at the Enzyme Peak only in terms of the church's need, not the world's needs. No, no, no. Only church needs church operations. The church, is, he's admitting that the church is not our brother's keeper. The church is going to look out for numero uno, and that's the church. Now, this next section, he gets in more into the shell companies. Let's, uh, let's review that. David Nielsen says he did not intend for his complaint to the IRS to become public. But in 2019, his brother shared it with the Washington Post. Nielsen, who in his free time races motorcycles, says he was shunned by some of his friends and neighbors in Salt Lake City. It wasn't until 2021, two years later, that David Nielsen heard from investigators, not from the IRS, but the Securities and Exchange Commission, 
which launched its own probe into Ensign Peak after that website story linked the church to shell companies. Well, wonder what website that is, Ryan. <laughs> I, I got to admit that when, you know, I was wondering how much, if any credit, we would be given in this. And when that when that line came out, it, it felt really good, to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let me, uh, that, that's, that's, that's tremendous, Ryan. Uh, Colby, let me ask you this. If David Nielsen was in all this for the money, which is another apologetic, why hasn't he written a tell-all book? Why didn't he go on the talk show circuit and do paid speaking engagements decrying the evils of deluded professors of religion? Why did, in fact, why did we only hear about his complaint from his brother going to the Washington Post behind his back without his permission? That for me, this is not the actions of someone who's trying to cash in on a small accounting paperwork mistake or, or someone with an ax to grind. This is in diametric opposition to if I was trying to do this and earn a lot of money, I would have made sure I whistleblowed the SEC. I would have done the, the, the books, the talk shows. I would have gone on all of he would Bill Maher would just eat up David Nielsen. He would come on there and Bill Maher would just love him over and over again. This is, this is he's not in it for the money. Yeah, no, I mean, that type of questioning the integrity of people who leave the church or who whistleblow against the church at whatever level, it happens every single time. But kind of like how, you know, Ryan and I were just talking about how the claim that Jesus leads the church's daily details can't hold up. I think for basically any any whistleblower or anyone who is viewed as being antagonistic towards the church, those claims also just never hold up. Like like you're saying, you know, take the take the claim that David Nielsen was just in it for the money. And then look at the facts. Look at what's happened to his life. Look at where he lives. Look at how much money he could have just made if he stayed on Wall Street. The claim doesn't hold up to the evidence. And that's that's where, you know, you asked me earlier, Dives, about our journey, how things have been over the last year. That, to me, is the biggest change in the way I live my life. Um, I apply that same enlightenment thinking scientific method to every claim. I'm skeptical of every claim now. And, and I was before outside of religion. So that's been the one change, but that's the one thing I'd encourage members to do. Like if you want to start with the assumption or you want to, you want to really investigate the claim, was David Nielsen just in it for the money? Are people like Bill Real, Radio Free Mormon, John Lynn just in it for the money? Go look at the evidence and, and that's where it's important, you know? Yeah, Ryan, let uh, me just, I want, before, well, I want to just take it. Let me just take it a step further from what you guys are saying. Let's just say he was in it for the money. I'm not saying he is, I don't know. But let's just say he is in it for the money. Who cares? That has no bearing on the validity or the accuracy of the information being presented. It doesn't matter. So it's 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 another in the long list of red herrings on this issue uh, when it comes to the apologetics. Yeah, technically, a person's motives makes no difference. It, it really it really does not. Now, um, let's, that's, let's that's a great. I just want to echo. That's a great point, Ryan. That entire apologetic, even better than what I said about actually look at the evidence, is what Ryan just said, which is even if you look at the evidence, completely irrelevant to his claims. If the church is doing things above board, that should hold up to scrutiny. Ryan, and since the uh, since Mormon leaks has been brought back into the spotlight here in a national way, because this video was number two trending on YouTube last week, has there been have you received more uh, you know inquiries or questions about Mormon leaks and or potentially bringing back the Truth and Transparency Foundation or anything like that? Uh, we, there's been a little bit of an uptick. I wouldn't say a great uptick. We've had some people reach out. Unfortunately, um, even before this or and, and, and after with a little bit of an uptick, the majority of the emails that I get um, through the Mormon leaks, Truth and Transparency channels are unhinged conspiracy theorists who want me to look into like, you know, stuff that just makes you makes your head hurt. You know what I mean? Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, COVID deniers, vaccine, anti-vaccine, you know, churches, you know, 
connections to Epstein, you know, all this stuff. Unfortunately, we get a lot of that nonsense and it, it kind of clouds maybe some of the good emails that we get, but I, I don't see, you know, to answer your question a little bit more pointed, I, you know, I don't see truth and transparency ever coming back in the way it was. Um, I think, you know, we're going to focus on writing, writing a book about it. And, you know, if, if, and when um, newsworthy things come across, come my way, I would most likely just funnel it to some, some good journalists that I've maintained relationships with. Now, this next section, uh, Sharon, uh, goes over a little bit more of what happened with the uh, SEC forms here. So let's uh, let's listen to this next section. What information did you give to the SEC? Everything. I helped them see the big picture. To protect market fairness and transparency, any firm with more than $100 million in securities must file accurate reports on its holdings with the SEC. But in February, the SEC announced the Church of Latter-day Saints and Ensign Peak failed to do that. I have to uh, weigh in here that the, she mispronounced the name of the church. Maybe that's a major victory for Satan or is deliberately flouting federal law, deceiving members about church assets and then showing no accountability or contrition. Maybe that is the major victory for Satan. I'm not sure which one is, of the two is worse. <laughs> OK, so I'll keep it going. SEC investigators found the church went to great lengths to hide $32 billion in securities over nearly 20 years. It created 13 shell companies that were assigned a local phone number that would go directly to voicemail in case regulators checked in. Here they had these back office accountants who had never bought a bond or sold stock a day in their life signing signatory pages for a portfolio that didn't exist. Hey, so, Ryan, as an accountant, um, how, how do you feel about this last segment? And this one gets to me big time. And this is what I was referring to in one of the earlier clips about how these people that were listed on these 13Fs were just, you know, random employees that, you know, most of them, I think, were like staff accountants. There were some that weren't even in an accounting roles. Um, this is a big deal. I mean, I worked for a long time as a government regulator, not not for the SEC or anything like that. But, you know, I take government reports very seriously. And when somebody puts their signature on a government report, you know, they better know what they're signing and be able to back it up. In my current job, I sign very important government reports that come out of the organization I work for, I would never, you know, and, and when I put my name on a report, I, you know, believe I can stand by. It doesn't mean I've never made a mistake or anything like that. I don't want to go that far, but I would never have my staff, even the ones that help me prepare the reports, I would never ask them to sign these reports. It would never even occur to me to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what's interesting, when I watched this before, Corby, before, before I get you in on this, when I watched this a couple of times, I realized in my own mind that David Nielsen, he probably knew most of those shell company managers because they were fellow EPA employees, because they were real workers who actually did work there. And he characterizes them as the lowest persons on the totem pole. Gee, Colby, I wonder why they picked the lowest people on the totem pole to manage billions of dollars in assets. Well, I mean, that's part of the order, right? They weren't milli managing million, billions, right. sorry, not millions, billions of dollars in assets. They were, I mean, they were literally like fall guys. Like they were patsies. <laughs> the church used them as patsies. One of the most, I think, enlightening parts of the SEC order is that when the initial disclosures happened, um, two of those, you know, I think they call them business managers in the SEC order. Two of those, you know, business managers up and resigned with citing concerns over what they'd been asked to do for the church. And that's where I think it really shows, you know, not again, not that David Nielsen's um, intention super matters, but I think it shows that he wasn't the only one troubled by what he was seeing at Enzyme Peak, right? Like to have two of them resign and rather than the church correct it, they just found two more fault guys. Like <laughs> this was incredibly intentional. And I, I really don't understand how anyone 
can excuse the church's behavior on this issue. It's it it's it wasn't criminal like the the SEC did not impose criminal criminal penalties. But I think I'll just say that you know the IRS if they're investigating they don't confirm whether they are or aren't. But they haven't they haven't concluded anything. Um, and I I think that we will see something. Um, I hope that we will see something. I think that will be much more telling. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just want to I just want to throw in um, on these low level employees. You know, when I was making the phone calls to these people, and I, and like I said earlier, three of them answered the phone. I believe it was three of them. The first two people did not. Um, they hung up on me. You know, they didn't you know say anything. They hung up on me. The third person, who also happened to be the only female who was listed on these forums, um, she. Uh, you know, I said something like, you know, I'm, I'm a reporter. I'm doing a story on, on these LLCs. And I saw your name on the report. I'm paraphrasing what I said. You know, I saw your name on, on this report. And I just wanted to call and ask a few questions about it. And she said, she said, well, I can't really, what did, hang on. When I, I want to remember exactly, because it was very interesting what she said. I, I outlined it in the wiki page. She said, um, I can't talk about it or something like that. And I followed up with a clarifying question of, you can't talk about it because you're not allowed to or because you don't know anything about it. And she said, because I'm not allowed to. And that right there kind of sealed the deal for me in the whole story. Yeah, I, I do find it very interesting. That's very interesting information, Ryan, because the only people that David Nielsen casts slightly negatively, I would say that he has, I'm kind of reading this in, but he has a slight negative perception towards these, what he calls the low persons on the totem pole in the entire show. Never once does he call out the president of the church or the presiding bishopric or pile on senior church leaders and say, these guys are morally corrupt or bankrupt. They don't really talk to God, anything like that. He has some minor levels of disdain for his fellow workers who were the ones who were um, complicit in this cover-up because he had integrity. So when he has disdain, it's for those fellow workers. In fact, he doesn't even bag on his boss, which is Robert Neiger, uh, Neidegger, who was the chief investment officer um, and is essentially the one who uh, he ended up resigning to. He doesn't bag on Roger Clark. He bags on nobody except for people who he perceives to have low levels of integrity by signing these 13F forms fraudulently. I find that to be very remarkable. Any last thoughts on this segment, guys? Well, I just have a question for Ryan. So it's interesting to me, like obviously as an attorney, right? Clients that I work with, we have attorney-client privilege. So if someone were to call me, right? I'm just kind of connecting with your story and I'm curious. So if someone were to call me and say, hey, what's the worst... <laughs> You know, what's the worst advice you've given to a client or whatever the random question might be um, that is going to be protected by attorney client privilege? I can't disclose that. Right. And so as far as accountant and investment ethics go, I can understand getting marching orders from Enzyme Peak that they couldn't talk about it. But but is there any like legal or um, accounting ethics requirement that would have prompted her response? Yeah, I mean, that is a good question. And I probably should be a little clearer in, in what I was asking her. I don't know, you know, there's definitely, you know, some confidentiality that accountants have to maintain when dealing with this kind of stuff, for sure. Uh, no doubt about that. But what I actually had asked her was when I initially made the phone call and I said, I'm just trying to find out if the church owns these LLCs. That's all I was asking. And if that was her signature on and if that was her name, like if that was her. I, I actually didn't ask her and had no intention to ask her about any of the details. I was simply trying to confirm church ownership of the LLC. Which would be something that that, yeah, that would be a secret. I mean, there's a there's a publication, there's a public 
you know, thing with her name on it saying she's managing this thing. And she says she can't say whether or not that's actually her. You know, right. right. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for answering that. That's interesting in, in light yeah. of what we've talked about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, definitely, we definitely brought the right people on to review this particular episode. And also, in particular, this next section, he's going to throw the lawyers under the bus. David Waddell, he's ready to throw the lawyers under the bus. Let's see what he has to say. Um, uh, Colby, I definitely want to get your hot take on this next section. The SEC fined the church and Ensign Peak a total of $5 million. Bishop Christopher Waddell told us it was the church's lawyers who advised them to create the shell companies. It was the lawyers, Colby. It was the lawyers. Yeah, you want my hot take on that? That was, that's a lie. There's no possible way. Well, when I say a lie, I mean, there's a lot more information behind that. So is it possible that lawyers advised to take this course? Yeah, but in response to what question? Like as an attorney, I don't go to my client, even a, like a long-standing client I have a good relationship with, and tell them to do something that's going to violate the law. That's just patently ridiculous. I think, and then to kind of pull this apologetic apart, like the church is now twice in the last year, in connection with this SEC scandal, and then in connection with the Arizona Bisbee case, blamed their attorneys. Then why would they keep employing the same extremely expensive law firm that has the headquarters, you know, their headquarters right across from church headquarters? Like, at some point, these apologetics just don't make sense, right? And it shows that they're lies because the church doesn't act consistent with them. I would say, particularly with the reputational injury that the church suffered with the SEC and a $5 million fine, right? There would be a huge claim for malpractice. Like this, the the and the widow's might lays out how, how settled the issue of 13 Fs are uh, in one of their, their reports to, to show that this was not a reasonable interpretation of securities regulation. There, it wasn't. This has been settled for 50 years, basically, uh, about how to handle th this this type of filing. And I think what that shows is that if the if if the church's excuse was true, if what he just said is true, and there's no context behind it that actually shows that the church is responsible, then they would have a huge claim against Kurt and McConkie for malpractice. And the fact that they're not exploring that shows that that excuse is. Can I swear on this show or no? <laughs> uh, well, let, let, let me just say one thing here. The church made her say that they relied on legal counsel. Bishop Waldell didn't say that. And I, I can almost guarantee that was a negotiated point. He didn't want to have to say it himself. He referenced back to the church's initial response to the SEC order in which the church said that, quote, we relied on legal counsel. And they put that into her mouth and not his mouth. And what's interesting, of course, is Roger Clark during this entire time, he ran his own private investment firm. And guess right. what? He managed to file his 13F forms in accordance with federal law rather easily, as do 99.5 per, or plus percent of investment companies. These type of fines are incredibly rare. So uh, any, any thoughts on this second section yeah. here, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, I agree with what Colby's saying about, you know, the malpractice and all that kind of stuff. I, I believe, and maybe you can fact check me real quick on this, but I believe the whole line about the attorneys relying on attorneys was only part of the church's official statement. But if right. you actually read the SEC report, yeah. the SEC report clearly states that the church itself purposely did this. And I want to tell you guys, and, I, and I'm sure you guys already know this, that SEC report is a settlement. That means the church right. knew what that report was going to say and agreed to it. Okay. Right. So that, that I want to say, first off, the other thing too, is this idea of trying to sort of throw the attorneys on, I mean, I'm sure attorneys were involved, right? You know, there the were attorneys review something, you know, try to give an opinion that, Hey, okay, you can get away with this. You know, if we look at it 
from this angle and squint just the right way or something, you know, the way attorneys are good at doing right. Colby. Um, I'm sure that happened, but you know, the idea that this was all just, Oh, shucks, we got some bad advice. I mean, we're talking all of these seasoned investors. If you listen to the average Mormon, their leaders, the leaders of the church are brilliant businessmen. And you're telling me all of these people were just like, Oh, well, the lawyers said we could do it. Shucks. I guess we can, you know, I, I just, it just defies any kind of reason or, you know, logic. Um, and, and, and it also goes back to this whole idea that, you know, Jesus Christ is running every little bit. Well, is he or isn't he? Because obviously, uh, did Jesus Christ take some, get some bad advice here? I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> See, so the thing is, is if you ask a, a financial lawyer, how can I obscure or hide a $100 billion plus investment firm? They will tell you that in order to do that, you're going to need to form shell companies, pretend to give them oversight, and that way you can conceal your uh, clandestine hedge fund. So yes, if you say, and then we did that, yes, you're relying on legal counsel to do so. So the statement itself very well may be true. You know, it's not a technically a lie. Okay, any last thoughts on this before we move on here, guys? Well, I would say that an attorney can't, so I, I know you're, the comment you just made, Dives, an attorney cannot, like an attorney, serve, it's a violation of attorney ethics for their services to be used in furtherance of, you know, criminal or illegal behavior, which that clearly would be. I expect if attorneys were involved at all, that they drafted some type of memo and look, attorneys have to do it. It's part of the job where they give direction that says, you know, I advise against this course, but if you're going to go with this course, here are certain things that you're going to need to do. I would expect that that's the only thing that the church's lawyers were involved in. The other thing I would, I would offer in connection with what Ryan just, uh, the comments Ryan just made is if the church had raised the attorney malpractice or potential malpractice as an issue with the SEC, that would potentially have been a defense to the church's liability. And the SEC would have investigated that. They would have had the church and uh, Kurt McConkie would have had to waive privilege and the, the SEC would have dug into that issue. That's why they didn't raise this issue with the SEC is because it's patently ridiculous. And I wish that we would see the SEC, you know, these, as Ryan said, these orders are settled negotiated documents. And my understanding is that the church cannot deny anything that's in there. And I, I think they are getting awfully close to undercutting the admittals that they made in that SEC settled order. And I would really be interested to pick the brain of, of people at the SEC that were working on this file. We'll never be able to do that, of course, but I would love to know what they think of what the church has said, because I don't see how you square what they've said, this included, with what they agreed to in the SEC order. Yeah, the rumor on the street is that the SEC personnel are furious with the relied on legal counsel line in particular. That's just legend and rumor, but that's the rumor on the street. Now, this next section in the in the 60 Minutes report is where we go back to the trailer of what he said. Is it secret? Is it sacred? Is it confidential? And let's see if it really is a cheap shot with editing or whether um, it was accurate. What about, you know, the idea that secrecy builds mistrust? Mm -hmm. Well, we don't feel it's being secret. We feel it's being confidential. What's the difference? The difference is, um, I guess it's a point of view. <laughs> it, it, Ryan, secrecy, it, confidential, sacred, secret. But <laughs> come on. It, the first thought that came to my mind when I originally saw that, uh, that uh, part of the, the episode was the uh, alternative facts that line right um yeah i think he i i it came off to me like he was not ready to answer that question um and i think when he says what did he say point of view or perspective whatever he said depends i think that's really telling because i think that is what it's boiled down to it's like hey from my perspective it's none of your business from your perspective it is 
And yeah, that's so, really all they look at. They don't not, look at like what's right or wrong. It's just, hey, I've got my perspective. You know, that's well, like the, my opinion, man. Right. And that's where if the only difference between two things is point of view or perspective, there is no difference between those two things. Right. That's just the way it is. If if the only actual articulable difference is the perspective you bring to the table, there's no difference at all. Those are the same exact thing there. I, there were a lot of people who were pointing out that you know, secret versus confidential. Those two are synonyms. Like literally, if you look up at a thesaurus, they yeah. mean the same exact thing. There's no difference between and, them. And you know what? A real business that actually had things that needed to be kept confidential and were being accused of sort of, you know, holding back secrets, you know, they would say things like proprietary processes, um, you know, maybe personnel, confidentiality, you know, whatever kind of things that, that would justify, um, confidentiality because there are legitimate things that 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 could theoretically uh uh justify the the term confidential in this case but i mean you know i don't know that the church wants to go down the road of trying to say that what they do is proprietary <laughs> well and i yeah. i think that's where my comments about you know the the accounting ethics versus attorney ethics my experience with attorney ethics i think is a big it's a very important distinction because if the confidentiality is imposed by some law or some ethical duty, it's confidentiality that's being imposed from the outside of the system, right? But the problem with what he's saying here is that the church is the one creating the confidentiality and then using as a defense when they're accused of misdeeds. And that to me is the problem. You can't make things confidential and then say, well, gee, shucks, I wish I could correct the record, but this stuff is confidential. It's only confidential because they've chosen that. On the flip side, if I was defending myself against an attorney malpractice claim or, you know, one of my clients was like, I would have something to point to to say, I would love to talk to you about this. But until, you know, privilege is waived or until certain claims are made, I can't do it. It's I'm not the one imposing that my attorney ethics rules are doing that. Right. That's the big difference to me. Yeah. So it's yeah. kind of like, well, it's not secret. It's sacred. It's not secret. It's confidential. It's not secret. It's tax fraud. And if you look at if you look at the look <laughs> on her face here, this is directly after he said, no, it's not secret. It's comp look at the look on her face. You know, that's that's not a good look. And, and when I remember, you know, I, this is taking me back to like my Star Wars day. It's really he talks about a certain point of view. That's where that's that's what we're talking about here, where a difference is between a certain point of view come on this no that's don't do don't don't quote luke skywalker to me whatever you do i guess that was yoda right <laughs> okay uh here's a, here's our next clip here with, with that we've got here it's confidential in order to maintain the focus on what our purpose is and what the mission of the church is rather than the church has x amount of money but don't you agree this would be a non-issue if there was more transparency no because then everyone would be telling us what they wanted us to do with the money yeah, it would be a terrible thing if the members had even the slightest shred, shred of input into how their tithing donations were utilized. According to Bishop Waddell, that would be a tragedy. I've got to jump in on this one because this is one of the this is one of the apologetics that really, really gets my goat every time. This is a very common thing that you hear, um, you know, about, well, if they were more, trans you know, you'll never satisfy the critics. So they'll You'll be transparent and then they'll just find something else to complain about. And, and that's a reason to just not share anything. Well, first of all, that's a bunch of nonsense um, because it's, you know, you, you can evaluate each criticism on their validity. So if somebody is, you know, criticizing the lack of transparency, you decide whether or not that's a valid criticism. And if there's transparency and somebody criticizes some, you know, financial element that's disclosed in those financials, then you can evaluate the validity of that, you know, uh, criticism independently, but even more importantly, all of all three of us here and, and probably most of your listeners 
were brought up in in a version of Mormonism that taught that taught us to do what is right and let the consequence follow. So the fact that they might get more criticism if they're more transparent, let's just say that that's true. Let's accept that at face value that statement. That is not a reason to not do the right thing and be transparent about your financials with your constituents. Yeah, Colby, thoughts on this last segment? Yeah, in fact, that's directly what President Hinckley, when he was on Larry King Live, I think he was asked directly about, you know, the church's transparency with its finances. And he even said, like, we believe that those disclosures best belong to the people who made those contributions. But like, no, they don't. (laughs) Like, they don't, they don't do that. Uh, um, I think also I agree with everything Ryan said, but I'd also just say what he is saying that they're like, what else says that they're doing this to prevent people from telling them how to spend the money. People are doing that anyways. People are saying like you could make world hunger go away for certain amounts of money. The widows might report has a whole report on how the church could add to like basically help solve the global energy crisis with solar panels and other energy production. Like people are doing that anyways. So the defense doesn't make any sense. This is, again, one of those that just these apologetics, man, like if if you needed any clear signal that there's no truth behind these apologetics, it's that when you actually think about them for more than two seconds, set aside um, cognitive biases for a second, they just don't hold up. And it's very clear. Yeah, you brought up the President Hinckley interview where he talks about uh, why the church doesn't disclose anything with regards to its tithing. Um, And let's just play that real quick. I believe it was not on Larry King. I believe it was on a French news program, but I do have that pulled up here for you. My country is, we say, people's churches, the Protestants, the Catholics, they publish all their budgets to all the public. Yeah. Why uh, it's impossible for your church? Well, we simply think that that information belongs to those who made the contribution and not to the world. That's the only thing. That's the only thing, guys. That's that's the only thing. <laughs> well, technically, he's technically in some ways he's true. He says it should be belong to the people who made the contribution. Technically, some people who make contributions, like members of the presiding bishopric and uh, uh, senior members of Ensign Peak, and presumably many apostles, they do have access to that. So technically, the statement is true. Members who made the contribution do have access to it, just not Joe member like you and me, right? Well, and I do want to say, too, like you will sometimes come across, you know, Mormons in the you know chat rooms and various other social medias that will say, hey, I'm a tithe payer. So I'm, you know, I'm the one that's sort of invested in this information and I don't care. I don't I'm fine with them not publishing. So that makes it OK. Um, that actually is not what ma- doesn't make it OK. And that doesn't change the, whether or not. Um, a stakeholder cares about the transparency or not. It has no bearing on the ethics of what level of transparency should exist. The, the church has an ethical obligation because of the fact that their, their operating expenses are paid through uh, tax-exempt donations. They have an ethical, forget legal, all that kind of stuff. They have an ethical obligation to be transparent about how that money is spent. And if a particular tithe payer is not interested in that information and doesn't want to look at it, doesn't want to consider it, that's fine. I mean, that's their decision. But that does not take away the church's ethical responsibility to be transparent. Yeah. Now, uh, this next uh, this next section, it uh, the church is going to walk us through Welfare Square and some other things where it says, look, yeah, we do have a lot of money, but look at all of the good we're doing with our resources. So let's check that out. Last year, the church says it spent over a billion dollars on humanitarian aid, including food production. 
But that's one of the big apologetics that you get from the church is, hey, yeah, we do have a lot of money, but we, we've spent a lot of, of that money. And the, the $1 billion figure is very, um, I can't characterize this as any other way other than highly misleading. And this is from the Widow's Might Report, and it talks about uh, blind faith, humanitarian good, and how much the church has given over the course of the last 15 years. And the aid that is given from the church is uh, typically been in the range of between $40 million and about $100 million consistently since 1985. And it's only in the last two years, as we've seen in the graph, that the number has skyrocketed to the $1 billion figure that we just heard from 60 Minutes. And a lot of people are really making a big deal out of this and saying, you know, hey, you look, you know, ever since Enzyme Peak and everything, the church has really, uh, you know, uh, a 50-fold increase in donations. The only problem with this entire line of argument is that it's the fast offering that the church is now counting as part of its uh, humanitarian donations, where in times past, the church didn't count the fast offering. And the reason for that is because when I give a fast offering to the church, the church immediately gives that, and it stays generally at the local level. The church gives that to someone else. That's not really the church giving humanitarian good. That's me giving humanitarian good. That's my that's my uh, effort. That's why I get a tax donation, a tax write-off for it. The church claiming now, and for the first time, that the fast offering is the church internally giving resources to other members is highly disingenuous, from my opinion, at, at a minimum. Any thoughts? My, my, under my understanding as well, and you probably read the report closer than I have, so tell me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is also included in that billion-dollar number is um, a value that's placed on the volunteer hours that members that's, put forward in some yeah. of these efforts, which is that's, another cop-out. Right. Yeah, that's right. correct, Ryan. Yeah, so the, the church, the, uh, taking aside the fast offering, which is usually around $800 billion per year or $900 billion, the $100 million that the church has been doing consistently for the last years is really separated into three areas. About a third of that is cash giving. They do give money directly to uh, the World Food Bank, to the, the to the Red Cross, to a number of other organizations, direct cash uh, cash uh, giving. They also give away a third of it is about goods, like the Deseret, uh, Deseret Industries and the food that we saw in the clip, that's goods. And then there's also services. When you go and volunteer at the church welfare farms or at the Bishop's Storehouse or the service missionaries, uh, you know, it's a $100 million rough figure that we just broke into the three sections. So what I'm trying to say is the $1 billion figure is just incredibly misleading. And uh, I just don't believe it because that's my donation, not the church's donation. You can't take credit for my fast offering. You can take credit for my tithing. You can't take credit for my fast offering. Now, here's uh, let's scoot up the next section here. In any given month, you may have an average of nine transfers that going from Ensign Peak back to the church to fund all church operations, all humanitarian work, uh, education work, all the work of the church, they fund. Money's going in and out of the cash accounts all the time, but Ensign Peak's funds were never used for any charitable purpose. It's to my knowledge, the whole time I was there. So there's a bit of a distinction here that's important. Explain that to me. Well, it's the difference between your checking account and maybe your retirement account. They're used for different purposes and you don't get to pretend that one is affecting the other. Can you explain the difference here that David Nielsen is trying to say about the treasury account of Enzyme Peak versus the investment arm of Enzyme Peak? Look back at that uh, Mormon Inc. article that came out, you know, 10 plus years ago, which I think was really kind of the first time anybody at Enzyme Peak was, you know, was allowed to talk to the media or whatever. And it was that guy, it was Roger Clark. I think he was the guy they spoke to at the time. And he mentions in that article about how, I believe it was in that article, someone's going to probably fact check me and find out I'm a little bit off on this, but it was something to the effect of, you know, the church funnels all of their money into Enzyme Peak and then Enzyme Peak then hands it back out for operations purposes. And so, and that makes sense, right? It may kind of makes sense for all the money to flow into there and then for them to sort of control the money so the spending doesn't get out of hand or whatever you want to, you know, however you want to look at it. And so from that perspective, what I think happens is, is that, you know, <clears throat> uh, from a year to year basis, the church, you know, they have this, the, 
Enzyme Peak has these cash accounts that they oversee where money is constantly flowing in from tithing and then it's being handed back out as needed. And then I think at the end of the year, there's a reconciliation done and the excess gets put into these investment funds, right? And so um, I think that's the distinction that that David Nilsson is trying to draw here is that, you know, this back and forth of uh, deposits and withdrawals between the church and Enzyme Peak has to do with like the donate, the, the tithing that they're receiving in real time, as opposed to the excess that then gets put away into the, into the funds. From the checking account portion of Enzyme Peak, which is shared with the church until that matures, sure. until that matures and all the expenses have been paid and we know we can cover all of our bills, then that portion is invested into the sure. investment arm. And that's the part that does not appear to have been doing anything of substance in the last few years. Do I have that sure, like, right, Colby? Oh, go, go ahead. Sorry, Ryan. Well, I was, I was just going to say, I mean, that, that's, and, and that's how all really all businesses work. I mean, you know, where I work, you know, you know, we, we want to maintain a certain minimum amount of, of liquid cash in the bank, you know, and anything that's in excess of that, you know, we can park away into some reasonable investments. Um, and, and we would add to that every year, as long as we sort of were maintaining our minimum cash levels that we felt comfortable with. Um, and, and I think that's essentially what they're doing. Yeah. Any thoughts on this last segment, Colby? Well, uh, you know, I'm not an accountant and I think Ryan's perspective is great. I think the only thing I'd add is just, if this is actually defense, because that's kind of, you know, Waddell's saying, well, we have these transfers going in and out. So what David Nielsen said isn't exactly right. Again, like, I, I just don't trust anything a church representative says unless they're bringing substantiation. Like, they could clear this all up very easily. But again, this this self-imposed confidentiality and transparency, they don't get the benefit of the doubt on it for me to, to say, no, no, he's wrong. We have these transfers back and forth. So I, I think what Ryan says makes a lot of sense. And I know that it's the same perspective that Spencer Anderson had uh, on this section on Mormonism Live. So I think that's probably accurate. But the reality is we're just guessing until the church really, uh, you know, complies with what we would all expect is a reasonable expectation of transparency. And, yeah. and to Colby's point about not being able to trust, I mean, it's, it's what's the old saying, right? That, that which is asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. So. Yeah. Hitchens razor after Christopher Hitchens. Big fan. Right. I mean, take the community of Christ, for instance. They have an independent audit of their finances every year, the so-called reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You get to see all their incredible budget, their deficits, their shortfalls, what their spending is on. This is done by an external firm that releases it on their website so that you don't have to trust the community of Christ themselves. Auditing oneself, as we found from the Ensign Peak, doesn't work out very well. It's not working the way that it is. And many other uh, religious organizations and charities have external audits so that people have trust and confidence that their donations are going to legitimate purposes and not being either squandered, mishandled, or used for personal enrichment. Now, this next well, section- to, Oh, sorry, to, to highlight ju To highlight just the value of even internal auditing, though, DBase, I would point out that part of the SEC order, this was one of the most shocking parts to me, is that the church's auditing department in 2014 and 2017, I think I have those years right, but bottom line is twice, they raised concerns about the Enzyme Peak arrangement with these shell companies and, and raised the concern. It's right in the SEC order that especially um, there was concern that the SEC was not going to buy this as a valid investment strategy. And we see that, you know, auditors are only as good as uh, the people being willing to listen to their advice, right? And so church leadership not listening to that audit, like if they would have, those protections and those professionals are put in place for a reason and not being willing to listen to them was part of the problem here. 
Yeah, David Nielsen also alleges that there were no compliance officers at Ensign Peak for the first few years of its initial founding. So, and he also talks about uh, Lars Nielsen in his YouTube video about how there was a propensity for deleted assets within Ensign Peaks. That's a, 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 an atmosphere that is ripe for corruption. I'm not saying anything happened, but when you don't have real audits, see, we had the church auditing department in the last general conference who said that uh, all uh, everything is on the up and up, everything is just fine. After the church had been fined $5 million. If you can't say something's wrong at that point, then church internal auditing is absolutely useless okay so our, our next uh, uh let, our next clip here let's uh, queue up our next one affecting the other the fundamental claim to me is that enzyme peak brings money in and it's the hotel california it never comes out phil hackney worked in the office of chief counsel of the irs and teaches tax law he concedes it's complex and the case falls into a gray area the church would say, we give millions of dollars out every year in humanitarian work. How much is enough by the standards of the IRS? We know within private foundations, it's 5% of assets. Um, there's no clarity when it comes to public charities um, and certainly not with churches. But I would expect to see something like 2 3% of assets being spent out to justify that status. But how do you know if they're spending two or 3% of assets if we don't know what the assets are? We have to rely on them behaving well. They yeah, so he, he brings up the point here that two to 3% is a baseline for charities. And it does not appear that Enzyme Peak has uh, reached that threshold um, according to David Nielsen's documents. I also just think that standard is incredibly low. Like to say that you can be spending 5% of your total assets on your, you know, charitable mission. Cause he's talking about public charities there. That's, I mean, that's like saying that if I spend one twentieth of my time, that's 5%, right? If I spend one twentieth of my time on yard work, that I'm a professional landscaper like that, that even though the church, I don't think is getting even close to that 5% figure. I think it's also just a problem in the tax code or the IRS's interpretation of the tax code. Uh, Cause I'm not sure where that number comes from that 5% is considered sufficient. That seems absolutely crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, it's extremely, extremely low, but um, that's that's part, that's part. where people are saying, you know, we need to write into our science finance committee and uh, change the federal laws because there are really no laws on the books that come uh, that, from my understanding, that really come to bear when it talks about charities being required to have disbursements. And uh, I guess that's a, I guess that's a big issue. Um, uh, any thoughts on this last segment here, Ryan? We're, we're getting close to the end here. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have any special insight on the IRS rules. I, I've never worked for the IRS or have, have dealt with them on this level um, that they're talking about. But um, my hunch on, on on the percentages, assuming they're accurate, my, my hunch on them being so low, it has to do with the fact that, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize sometimes with certain charities, like, you know, how much operational overhead there could be. And so I think the IRS is going to probably lean on a very conservative number that um, so as to not sort of penalize good charities that are doing good work that happen to have, you know, high levels of operational overhead that, that, that the general public may consider to be legitimate. So I think it's because I think it's hard to come up with a number that that you can apply reasonably to all charities and be like, everyone should be able to hit this number. Yeah. So, I mean, but from my perspective here, the church has, I don't know, 150 billion in Ensign Peak and about 100 billion in real estate. So we'll call it a, a conservative estimate would be a quarter trillion dollar church. Two to three yeah. percent, two to three percent of <laughs> that would be about $500 million per year. And the church in this last year, taking out the fast offering, I'm not counting that, that's not church donation, 
This last year, the church was at $200 million. That is less than 1%. Bishop Waddell doesn't look at things in terms of percentages. You know, I never went to business school, but I can put a percentage together. It's less than 1% when, according to the tax expert, it should be 2 to 3%. So, and again, the church this year did $200 million. That's an all-time high. So basically, the summarization for me is the church is asking members to give 10% per year, but the church does not follow in kind at all. And we're going to- I did. I was just going to say, just so people understand, that 250 billion that you're talking about, a quarter of a trillion, that are that that is using extremely conservative estimates, right? As I joined the call, you were talking with Ryan about the difficulty in pulling data from from local county assessors like websites on actual property values. Uh, I would expect in most instances, like how do you attach a value to like a temple? Like it almost has like it obviously has value, um, but attaching value to that on the assessment side, that's actually my background is like property tax appraisal yeah. work. I've been doing that for you know years. And I like I know our local assessors here, like we have an exemption for like uh, hospitals that are owned by a charity. So the big ones here are owned by like Catholic charities, right? And they don't like most of the county assessors, even though they could put a value on that, presumably, they don't even bother because it's not it's not taxable anyways. So I, I yep. imagine that all I'm trying to say, Divas, is that that 250 billion that you're talking about, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the church's real net worth was double or triple that. So what we're what you're saying is based on the most conservative estimates. Yeah, the widows might report values temples at $1,100 per square foot and then a $2 million for the grounds. So they do have a rationale with the average temple being approximately 30,000 square feet. That gives the average temple grounds of around $35 million. That's just, I just happen to, I just happen to know that figure. Now, um, to, let's, to, Colby's, to Colby's point about it being hard to put numbers on those temples, though, I mean, it is true. And, and the, because if the church was ever going to sell a temple, if they ever reached that point, um, they, it, it, they would tear the building down and then we'll just sell the land. Um, so the value is, is, you know, when you talk about on paper, there was never anything more of an on paper only value than there is a temple. Yeah, absolutely. They bailed out this insurance company. That's the words they used. Is that a problem? It is a problem, in my opinion, if they have moved money from the nonprofit to a for-profit so how likely do you think it would be that the IRS would ever investigate this? Slim. The political risk is so great that it comes with real danger. This, at the same time, there's a real risk to the rule of law if the IRS doesn't come in and enforce those rules. So what is the political danger here if the IRS does launch an investigation in the church? Why is that so politically dangerous? Because religion is the last sacred cow in this country. And if they go in... Um, with all this hype that the public is, you know, that many of the public have built around this and find out that, you know, either they did nothing wrong or what they did wrong was, you know, insignificant in comparison to the original claims. Um, you know, it makes it very easy for politicians to use it as a political football to help themselves get elected. And that is unfair and, uh, to the process and to the purpose of an organization like the IRS. And, um, they are truly in uh, in a you know in between a rock and a hard place. I've spoken to a an IRS criminal investigator that I used to know, um, and he 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 is. I mean, and this was years ago for before you know anything any of this. This I think was even before Mormon leaks even existed. And we talked about you know the church investigating or the IRS investigating the church on a number of levels. And he's like, it's just it's, it would never happen. And, and it's not just the Mormon church; it's really any church. Um, and if you look at um, religious figures who have gotten in trouble with the IRS, because that does happen, it does exist. Um, it's almost always 
if not always. I mean, maybe there was a church that once got in trouble and something really blatant. But if you go and look at all the cases of religious figures getting in trouble with the IRS, it's, it's them as they're personally um, and they're related to their personal finances as opposed to the church's finances. And um, I think it just it just it's very difficult um, for the top brass to sort of pull the trigger on these investigations because of the whole thing of like, what if we're wrong? So they need almost like somebody, you know, and David Nelson may not have reached this threshold. They need somebody to come in with evidence that is not just irrefutable, but of a, of a dollar amount that like pretty much anybody from any political persuasion wouldn't be able to sort of just excuse away. Yeah, Colby, what about the rule of law here? Because, yeah, it's hard to go after religious organizations, but I believe you spent a lot of time in the prosecutor side of the aisle. What about the rule of law? If you just let people get away with anything, then we don't have a democracy, right? Absolutely. I mean, the rule of law is something I believe in um, almost stronger than anything else. Um, I think that's one of the things that's been most surprising to me is seeing members' responses to the SEC order and and these same concerns about how the church uses its money is that um look it's no secret that we live in a time that's hyper uh polarized i think you know it, we've been on this road for the last decade um jonathan height a lot of ex-mormon people love him because of his book you know the righteous mind jonathan height wrote a piece in last may's atlantic called why the past 10 years of american life have been uniquely stupid if you haven't read it it is a great piece. It is not focused on blaming either the political right or the political left. It's analyzing the way that we take our information, how it has affected our politics. And the the analogy that he uses, he analogizes um, our situation right now to the biblical allegory, well, I'd call it an allegory of the Tower of Babel, and saying that we're we're getting to this point where people who are on opposite sides of the political divide almost can't speak the same language because the inputs that they're receiving, the media they're consuming, the social media echo chambers that they built for themselves have made it almost impossible to speak to each other. And one of the, the reason I, I want to share that piece is one, because it's fantastic. And even though it's long, people should read it. But the other is that I've seen so many responses um, from believing members that are basically like, well, the SEC is corrupt anyways, because the government's corrupt and everything's terrible. And I'm not saying that the government is perfect, right? So I've been a government employee for my entire career as an attorney. I've been a government attorney. I know the problems probably better than most of those people. But at some point, these things only become better if people try and fix them, right? We can't just like scrap the US government and start again. Like that's not a legitimate choice, right? So the only thing we have is, is to make things better. And one of the things that's most shocking to me is that the SEC, like the SEC doesn't get money like the IRS does, right? The SEC is literally just a watchdog to protect investors and to protect the market and to protect the entirety of our US economy, or really world economy. And that has been the most shocking thing to me is seeing how many members pivot and say things like, well, the SEC is corrupt anyways, down with Caesar, Christ is king. Like, I, I seriously want to just grab them and be like, you idiots. Like, this stuff is here to protect you. These regulations are here to protect you, to protect you from people taking advantage of the market. And your, you know, strongly held religious beliefs are getting you to this point where you can't even see that you're, you've been convinced to, to further something that cuts against your own interest. And so that's kind of how I feel about the, the political pressure situation. I think Ryan's comments are absolutely on point. Like, that's why I think it's frankly amazing that the SEC took action at all. I know that people are disappointed in how small the fine is, but that shows you how seriously the SEC took this issue. And that's why I, I, I'm hopeful 
that the IRS is also going to take it as seriously. And, and Ryan's absolutely right. Like they are not going to move forward unless the case is absolutely airtight. And I hope that we see that. Well, with the SEC fine was 50 times larger than any other 13F uh, fine that they've ever handed out. So that's a pretty significant message. And is the IRS going to come with another shoe to drop? Could take a decade for us to get to the end of that. Remember, the IRS is heavily undermanned. I mean, and there's no political appetite out there to go after a, a religious institution. There just isn't because there's no upside for those uh, congressional congressmen members. There's only a downside. And remember this also, the IRS, they waged a crusade against Scientology, which was much, much worse than the church in every respect. And guess what? They gave up after a decade, gave them back their tax exempt status and got absolutely nothing for the effort. They're going to remember that war that they waged against Scientology, which was a complete, uh, basically a complete waste of time on their part. OK, uh, we got two last segments here to go through uh, and then we'll be wrapping things up here. David Nielsen says honesty is a tenet of the faith. He wants Ensign Peak Advisors to pay the taxes he says it owes on the $100 billion fortune built from tithing. If the IRS decides Nielsen is right, he could be rewarded with up to 30% of what's collected. The IRS does not comment on whistleblower complaints. Okay, so according to Lars Nielsen here from the letter to an IRS director YouTube, the, if the church were to lose its uh, tax exempt status on Ensign Peak, retroactively enforced all the way back to 1997, you would be looking at a total fine and penalties of as much as $50 billion. So if David Nielsen whistle, uh, if the whistleblower complaint actually comes to fruition in that way, 30% of $50 billion is an awful lot of money. And that's why some people are impugning his motives. Um, any, any thoughts on this last segment here, Colby? Well, I'll just say that, you know, the whistleblower, the, the IRS fines and complaints, if if that is what ends up happening, I think that will honestly be the least of the church's concerns, like the actual money um, that goes out as part of that fine and, um, the you know, the whistleblower reward, because I think that will open the door. You know, we've seen a few lawsuits, the Gaddy lawsuit in Utah, Huntsman's lawsuit in California about reclaiming tithing based on material misrepresentations. As far as I know, no one's moved forward on any type of uh, class action or anything uh, based on, you know, the findings in the SEC report. But I think that is, um, I, I guess I'll say, I think we're seeing some interesting developments on that. The IRS taking action will add even more interesting developments on that. And um, I think we'll just have to wait, right? That, that's part of kind of the worldview we've kind of shifted to, right? Is we believe claims, you know, when there's evidence for them. And so we'll see how those things uh, shake out. Absolutely. Now, here's our final clip here of the 60 minutes of uh, uh, the 60 minutes. Why are you speaking now? It's time, Sharon. We gave the IRS and the SEC all the professional courtesy. This is just too important to fall through the cracks. It's possible that you were dead wrong. No, I know what I saw. I know what I know. Ryan, you've worked a lot with whistleblowers. What type of uh, what type of obstacles and courage does it take? You know, is he facing and um, to, to bring this kind of thing to light? Well, I think the obvious one would be you know tarnishing his reputation among any kind of Mormons that he still associates with and wants to continue to associate with. Um, you know, maintaining whether or not to maintain uh, anonymity as a as a whistleblower or a leaker is something that I've had to deal with a lot with a lot of our sources and uh you know i've seen it work i've seen it not work um you know i think i don't know how he feels about having you know not remain anonymous or not you know maybe it's worked out for him i don't know i think 
I, I personally find there to be a lot of value in staying anonymous until, you know, either forever or until sort of, you know, things are fully adjudicated because, you know, one of the pitfalls, and this is not a criticism, by the way, of David Nilsson for having come forward. I, I, I don't really care one way or the other that he, he didn't maintain anonymity. I'm just speaking just in general terms. You know, I think one of the things that happens when somebody leaks something uh, or whistleblows on something and and makes their name known is the story becomes about them as opposed to the issue. And that can it helps with apologetics. It helps it it, it helps slash hurts, you know, clouding up the issue, um, depending on what side of it you're on. <laughs> that's a good or a bad thing. Um, and I think there's a lot of unintended consequences that a lot of leakers don't anticipate. Um, you know, if it's a secret recording, for example, you know, now all of a sudden people are asking you, you violated this person's trust, which, which, which might be true, actually, you know, um, you know, what was it, was it worth it? Was it, uh, justified or not, you know, becomes a debate, but if I'll, I'll give you a very real example, the Sterling Van Wagenen case that we talked about earlier, um, you know, I, uh, Sean, who has since come forward, you know, initially stayed, um, anonymous and we talked about that at great Sean, Sean was abused Sean was the child who was abused right well back in the 90s he's not the okay. one that Sterling went to prison for okay but he was the one he made a secret recording he he, he basically oh. brokered a meeting with this guy to get closure and secretly recorded him he didn't break any laws doing it but he violated the trust of Sterling Van Wagen and you know he was going back and forth on whether or not to come forward you know when we published the story he ultimately came forward um I don't remember how long, long it was later, but it was several months, if not a year later. I don't remember exactly. But, um, you know, one, so so all of a sudden, instead of Sean having to field questions of why he violated the trust of Sterling Van Wagenen, we were able to, you know, the story was able to focus on Sterling Van Wagenen and what he did. And there's cases out there where there were some secret recordings released where the person didn't stay anonymous. And that is exactly what happened. People forgot about what the content of the recording was and simply focused on the fact that this person had had violated the trust of something. So I think, you know, when people are leaking things and, and putting things out there, I do think they need to think long and hard. My advice is always to stay anonymous initially and let things flow out a little bit and see you know see where they go before you make a decision on that but um you know every individual has to make their own decision yeah that's that's a great point um we're, we've wrapped up of the review of the 60 minutes colby let me just get some last thoughts from you how would you characterize david nielsen as either a witness which is essentially what this episode put about is he a credible witness and what about uh, uh bishop waddell's demeanor and also 60 minutes bent did they have an axe to grind today how did you feel about how all all, all of it uh turned out well, let me start with your last question. So they're bent. Um, I think that 60 Minutes really pitched this as like a David versus Goliath story. Um, I think the church has been in the news for not a lot of great things over the past two, well, really since, um, you know, Lars Nielsen shared David's report with the Washington Post. Um, I think the church is in the midst of a continuing kind of PR problem. Um, and so I think it was easy for 60 Minutes to cast them as the bad guy. Now, you asked me a question about David Nielsen's credibility. I think he came off very sincere. I think he came off being driven by that principle that Ryan talked about earlier, which was part of the reason you know, my wife and I spoke out also, is I, I really believe, do what is right, let the consequence follow. Um, that you know, integrity is doing the right thing, especially when it's inconvenient. And so I think David has shown a lot of integrity. But I'll say specifically about your question about how will he he hold up as a witness, provided this ever goes to court. 
one, I don't see it ever going to court. I expect even if the IRS moves forward, it will just be settled much like the SEC allegations were. But I'll, I'll, I will say that at least based on the recordings we have, it doesn't seem like they really subjected David's claims or his intentions to any type of cross-examination. Now, I'm not saying that uh, there's anything that indicates that he wouldn't hold up well. I'm just saying that, um, you know, being asked friendly questions that cast you as the good guy is completely different than being really subjected to cross, like the type of questions that come up on cross-examination where you try and you know, that's that's the point where the opposing attorney or, you know, someone with the opposite interest gets to ask you the harder questions. So so that's my real thought on David. Um, my and, I, and I'm not criticizing him at all or, or saying that he doesn't come off as a uh, is a very credible witness. I think he does come off very well and very credible. Um, I'm just saying that we really don't have a great sample size. Now, the last question you asked was, oh, sorry, go ahead, Brian. Well, I just wanted to, you know, uh, based, you know, to echo what you're saying. It, I actually think, based on what we know right now, I think he might not do very well at all on the witness stand. Because um, I, I think it would be, again, based on what we know right now, what he, unless he's holding something back, I think it would be very easy for a very, for a good attorney to, you know, establish that he didn't know as much as he thinks he knows about what was going on, you know, and that he was much more isolated in the operation than he thinks he was. And unless he can mm -hmm. sort of combat that with some additional information, I, th I, I don't think he would be that great of a witness on the stand just by himself. Yeah, it's entirely possible. And that's really what I'm trying to say is we just we don't know. You know, this this was it seemed like very friendly questioning on Sharon's part. And I'm not saying there's anything untoward about that. I'm just saying it's a lot different when you have to be confronted with, you know, um, I was going to say the great attorneys at Kurt McConkie, but the church keeps blaming them for all their mistakes. So maybe maybe that would cut against it. Uh, the I, last I, question. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go, I, what I would say is that David Nielsen in the segment comes across as incredibly reluctant. And, you know, typically what you want for your star witness is somebody who's just eager beaver and ready to take down the, the evil corp. You know, if he came across as eager, ready to take down and rip down the church and the church is an evil corporation. And I want to, you know, it's done so many things wrong. It's harmed so many people. That would seem to be, I think, if I'm catching you right, Ryan, that that would be more credible. But what we had is almost him very reluctantly saying, you know, I wanted to do something great with my life. And it turned out that all I was doing was making money. And uh, that's why I left Wall Street to begin with. And so uh, that, that's, that's no, my take on it. That's, and that's actually a, not at all what I was saying, because I, I think that no. attitude that you, you present, you know, that, that you'd say he could have of, you know, being much more gung-ho about, hey, let's take this down. I think that actually would hurt him. Okay, um, I, I agree. I, I, yeah. I, I, what I'm more referring to is if you go back and look at the original report that, that was published when he came out to the Washington Post, it really is nothing more than assertions. There really is very little to no hard evidence other than, you know, like the 13 F's that we had already put out there. Um, and so for really everything that he says about the hundred billion dollars, you kind of have to take his word for it. Now that doesn't mean he's wrong and it doesn't mean he's lying. Um, so I'm not saying that. I, I mean, in fact, I have no reason to doubt him at all uh, uh, on the information he presented. It's just that he didn't really present evidence. He presented information that he's asserting to be true. And as an insider, maybe he comes with some credibility, but it would take an investigation from the IRS to really confirm that it was true. And I think that's the hurdle that he is not going to be able to cross with the IRS unless he's held back something or unless the IRS has some information that when cross-reference with his information is a huge conflict. I think that's what's going to be hard for the IRS to move forward because he didn't really present any actual evidence. Well, if you look at the Religion Unplugged news story that went along with this, David Nielsen released 90 pages of, doc of serious documentation to Religion Unplugged that details his specific allegations 
um, in great detail. And he allegedly gave more than the 90 pages to the Senate Finance Committee, committee which is much yeah. more. So uh, obviously, we don't have access to his complete picture. So it, yeah. it's going to be hard. And to I, I don't want to get too much into the weeds and be pedantic about it all. But like, like I said, I mean, you can write as many pages as you want about your assertions. And they might all be true. Like, like I'm saying, I'm not saying that he's wrong about any of this stuff. I'm just saying that, you know, I, I don't know that what he's presented from what I've seen right. is, is rises to the level of like something that could independently hold itself up in court and be the basis of a legal action. Yeah. Okay. Uh, any last thoughts on this? Uh, but I think we've, uh, there's four bonus overtime clips. We don't have time to get to those, unfortunately, because okay. we kind of ran That's out of fine. time. But is there, is there any last thoughts on uh, the entire 60 minutes uh, uh, episode or anything else that you guys want to share before we wrap it up? Well, I just want to, you asked me um, in, if I had any closing thoughts about how Waddell came off. And yeah, this, this is a talking point I think happens a lot kind of in post-Mormon spaces. There are a lot of people who assume that church leaders, you know, Waddell included, are mustache twirling villains. And then there are other people who venerate them and think they're just the most brilliant people in the world. Um, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle in the sense that I, I, I sincerely do not believe, uh, I really take the, the tack that Sam Harris does on this. He says that like bad ideas are much more, there, there are very few bad people, but there are a lot of bad ideas that lead otherwise good people to make bad decisions. And I think that pretty much sums up my take on the church's leadership. I'm not saying that what they've done hasn't broken the trust. I'm not saying that what they've done, at least potentially, um, isn't serious. But I think we need to recognize that like, they seem to sincerely believe that what they're doing is justified and that it is furthering God's kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean that that's true, um, but that's kind of my takeaway is that what it confirmed to me watching Waddell and some of the other clips we've watched, you know, the Bednar clips and everything, it just confirms to me how truly out of touch these men are. Like they really, really live in this echo chamber where they're not getting access to the full picture of the reality of the human lived experience. And it's it's mind boggling to me that someone can make a joke about billions versus millions, right? Like the thing we watched with um, watch with Bednar. And a lot of Waddell's clips came off the same way. I think he came off, um, I think he didn't, you know, obviously he followed his marching orders and didn't give, give uh, the reporter anything really to work with additionally on top of Nielsen's allegations. Um, he used some apologetics that like Ryan and I've talked about absolutely don't hold up to like two seconds of, of common sense. But I, I've seen a lot of TBMs eating them up. And so I think that's where, you know, speaking out against bad ideas or ideas that, that just don't hold up is very important. Um, and uh, that's kind of my last thought is I don't think the church leaders are mustache twirling villains. But that doesn't mean that their actions don't have real consequences and cause real, real harm in people's lives. And I think, um, I, I would hope that they start to build down or tear down the echo chambers that they built up for themselves because the church isn't going away. And so all I hope is that it does less damage to people um, as it continues on down the road. Um, and I, I think they are making moves in that direction, but it's not without pressure from the outside by, by you know, people like people like Ryan and people who hold them accountable. So I think that's that's all we can do to help make the church better is to hold them accountable to what they say. 
yeah, just a couple last thoughts from my own perspective. Bishop Waddell, he showed no contrition, no apologies. He just doesn't care. He didn't give one inch to anything. No one, according to him, made even the slightest mistake. This is all according to divine plan. He's smiling throughout the entire presentation. He didn't acknowledge even one problem. And the big, another big takeaway is that the, um, the church feels no ethical or moral obligation whatsoever to disclose anything to anyone or to do good with its substantial resources. And don't forget that according to the General Handbook of Instruction, as someone who helped perpetuate years of investment fraud, Bishop Waddell and other senior church leaders, for that matter, should be subject to mandatory church discipline. It says mandatory in the church handbook, not, not grinning across from a journalist as he tries to spin good PR for the Lord. Um, so I want to thank you both uh, so much for coming with me on, on the Mormon News Roundup to ruminate on the Great and Spacious field, uh, Great and Spacious Beehive, as we call it. And uh, thanks so much for being here. And remember, remember, no one held a hand can stop this podcast from progress progressing. We're going to go live on YouTube with this episode. I'm going to edit it and go live on YouTube Sunday nights at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So long, guys. Thank you. When it comes to nicknames of the church, such as LDS Church, the Mormon Church, to remove the Lord's name from the Lord's church is a major victory for Satan. 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 Hey there, brothers and sisters. Thanks for listening to the Mormon News Roundup. And if you are enjoying this show, please consider making a donation. Patreon makes an important contribution to helping us ruminate on the great and spacious beehive here. So thanks so much to everyone for, for supporting us on Patreon.com.